This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, of all ages, step right up and listen to the amazing Dale Jr. Download, brought to you in podcast, and on NBC in Technicolor. Take a seat and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Back again for the Dale Jr. Download. It's Dale Jr. Co-host, Mike Davis is here. That's right. Out of the deer stand, I see. Yeah. Yeah, I did a little Did you get anything? No, I saw a bunch. Really? Oh, yeah. Where were you hunting? Do you care to tell? Uh, at my property. Yeah, at my On place. On your home? Yeah, yeah. At my, your house? At the bottom of my field, yeah. Oh, how many did you see? Well, about 10 or 12. That's pretty good for mm-hmm. North Carolina. I mean, you know, I yeah. don't look at North Carolina as a very good hunting, yeah. deer hunting place. Really? I saw a... Uh, it's deer, actually my first year to hunt it. I saw a little spike on the drive home from Concord Airport last night. Yeah, I just love watching them. So that's kind of yeah. in your neck of the woods, I guess. Yeah, sure is. Right down the road. Matthew Dillner's here. And uh, Liam on. How are you guys doing? Great. Oh, okay. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> great, great. Excellent commentary. Great. Thanks, Cotton. Addition to the show. We love having those guys. <laughs> well, let's get started. It was a uh, another race weekend in Texas. We only got a couple weeks left, a couple shows left. And uh, we're going to wrap this season up. And then we'll, we'll, we'll start again, right? right oh, yeah. Daytona yeah. 500? Yeah, just take a little break. Yeah. yeah. You think it, we'll do a show during the winter? I've always asked you to do a show. We, well, you winter. know, we did one in December last year, uh, but that was because Jeff Gordon, you know, all of a sudden became a. Uh, no, you can't give Jeff Gordon no credit. Really? But that, I really think that that's why we did this it. This is a room of no credit for, for Jeff, Jeff Gordon. Gordon. <laughs> There's a no Jeff Gordon credit zone. <laughs> yeah. We're hard on Jeff. All right, here. fair enough. That's right. Okay. Uh, I, are you saying you want to do one in December? I think we should put a poll out uh, oh. immediately in well, the, at this moment. Uh, <laughs> what do we think the results are going to be? If we, <laughs> I think we should put a poll out. Hey, should we do a sort of maybe a um, mid-off-season show? I don't know whether it needs to be too Mike? early Mike, in the off-season, but maybe you know when everybody gets back from New Year's, uh, something early January – First, second week of January. Early January is fine. Although I like the uh, I like the theory of everybody's pretty busy in December. Leaving people wanting more. I like that idea. <clears throat> I do too. What if we just did a twenty minute? Hey guys, how oh. are y'all doing? Live. What if we did a twenty? Ooh, yeah. What if we did some maybe. YouTube live stuff? Just a little hey, ask Junior or a, a get to, just a get together. How everybody doing? How was how was Christmas? I like that idea. I like that. No yeah. guests. No guests. If people don't want to watch it, they don't have to watch it. <laughs> Which is true now. I even. think it maybe maybe uh consciously I'm I'm just trying to make sure we don't get too rusty. I got gotcha. you. You don't uh, want to or you're gonna miss us. I mean I'll miss doing this. I'll miss you guys for sure. I mean I'm gonna see y'all because y'all right. work here. He's still our boss coming around. <laughs> but I think I'd I just think it'd be good. I like the idea. Your, keep grease the wheel a little bit. There you go. All right. Well, we'll talk about it. I don't know. Did you put out a poll yet? I have not. Oh, the expert, the social media expert. <laughs> I wasn't sure where we were going with this. So. You never know. We'll see what we come up with. I'm sure I can encourage you guys to put something together. I think you got to qualify. You're always looking for content. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, there's another thing, though, is that uh, you've got us doing a lot of content already in the offseason. Man, what you want so, to start uh, a media company. So, no, no, no. Yeah. Hey, I love it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Okay. I love it. I'm just saying, your schedule and our schedule is uh, quite full. <laughs> the only, what have we got? I got, we got, um, we're going to do the uh, North Wilsboro weed eating, surface cleaning sort of uh, escapade or whatever you want right. to call that. Right. That's coming up. 
so that we can scan it for the iRacing online simulation. What is what's what's the content? A, a television show that we're building. Remember? Oh yeah, we're well we are. <laughs> it's yeah. it's it's kind of a big deal. We're doing it. We haven't we announced. A, it. We got a TV show in the works that we haven't announced that I'm pretty excited about. Matthew, you're excited? Slightly. Oh yeah. Wait a minute. Matthew. Slightly. This has That's been a, your dream. No, slightly. He, he's being facetious. I'm, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. Okay. This is that sarcastic face. Couldn't tell. Yeah. Seemed pretty seemed pretty real. <laughs> I uh I, I me and Matthew had this really unique passion and uh that we share. And I am so glad to finally bring it together. That's right. But let's not reveal too much yeah. because that's uh, th- th- we we are we've it's got not a pizza heat. show though. It's a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or, or hockey. <laughs> right. yeah, you don't like hockey. It, so you guys are going to do a, 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 a New York Islanders hockey I, okay, show? Guys. Is that what you're doing? Right, it's ice no, carving, do <laughs> <laughs> chainsaws, and cur- uh, the second segment will be about curling. Yes, obviously. Yeah, broom ball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we had a uh, race this weekend in Texas. Kevin Harvick dominated. Yeah, it's a so-so race. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know you listened to it in the deer stand. Was that what you were doing or what? No, no, I was listening to you. I was listening to NBC. I had the NBC. Right. Uh, oh, the yeah, telecast. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you listened to the race. Yeah, a good bit. Um, first stage was crazy. All these cautions. We had six cautions and then no, no cautions in stage two. And then Kevin Harvick dominated stage three. Mm-hmm. And just... Uh, Inter- you know, interesting. Denny went in twenty four points above the cut line. Lee's twenty something, twenty two points below the cut line. Pretty crazy race for a lot of people. Let's see. Before the oh, intentional spin by uh, mm. Bubba Wallace has everybody in, up in arms. Um, it's getting a text from a couple drivers after the race about about that and what NASCAR should do. And then um, you were or he was? I I, I got a couple. you were yeah. And then um, Larson I think said something uh, in his post race about. Uh, maybe NASCAR stepping in. Uh, I think Tony Stewart said that NASCAR shouldn't step in, uh, that they shouldn't be involved in that. As a you know, uh, and, and he threw in also, you know, while we're at it, take you know, they shouldn't be involved in the yellow line rule as well. They told him, which I thought was great, and I tend to <laughs> agree. I, I I guess that they shouldn't, uh, you know, go into that judgment call area. And I only think the reason why is because it's hard to trust them to make that call right every time and the question is is like obviously it's easy for me to sit there in the booth and i said it he spun out on purpose all right Mm. now i'm not driving the car but with my eyes and my 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 judgment my my perception i think that that's what happened right um but are we wanting sports to be judgment calls right Do, do you want do you want i like black and i've always liked Black and white rules, right or wrong, uh, yes and no. I don't really like uh, someone's interpretation yeah. playing a role in the decision, right? And so I almost feel like in this case that would have to be what, what would happen. People would have to interpret, okay, I, I interpret this as intentional spin, and then there's going to be disagreement and agreement and, and you know, also the different series – Xfinity Cup and Truck uh, have different directors in the in the tower, different people in there that are making those decisions for each series, and that's why there's a lot of there's a little bit of ebb and flow of of decision making inconsistency from some from race to race from between. If you'll go to and watch a race weekend where, where there's trucks, Xfinity and Cup, they may call a yellow line rule or a guy blocking below the yellow line one way in a truck race, and then different in a cup race. Well, that's because there's different people in the tower that are governing that series, right? 
and their interpretation of what that block was or who what was intentional or what who was you know who was wrong or right is different uh, from Saturday to Sunday. So you're going to have that little bit of inconsistencies uh, in those type of judgment calls, and I think that you have the same sort of uproar, I guess, if you went into deciding whether somebody had an intentional spin or not. I feel like that the best way for this to go is for the drivers to police it themselves. You know, if 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 it screwed over Larson and a couple other guys, then they should go to Bubba and say, Bubba, you know what? Um, I know you're trying to do something good to help yourself. We've all done it, uh, but but that ruined my race, and I'm trying to race for a championship. And I, you know, maybe next time Bubba makes a better, a different decision, or maybe he doesn't. You know, right? But there's some things in the garage that sort of police themselves through the teams, drivers, the crew chiefs, uh, and that that I think is one of them. You know, when when sort of when things sort of get out between the lines or off the blacktop, if, when things sort of go awry, sometimes the drivers have to sort of police it back. Uh, maybe somebody speaks up. Maybe one of those guys that everybody trusts goes to Bubba or whoever's intentionally spinning. Right? You know, we've all done it. We've all done it at some point sometime. I think Joe Logano did it last, the week before at Martinsville. You know, had a flat tire, mm. turned his car around, trying to get a yellow. If he pits and doesn't bring out a yellow, I mean, if he just comes gingerly to pit road and we go green, he goes two laps down instead of maybe one or maybe none, you know. So, he's, you know, that's that's a driver trying to do trying to do something desperate to save himself. Um, and I don't like NASCAR trying to get in the middle of that and trying to, trying to handle that. But they have before. There's precedent of them doing it. Well, let's name a couple of those. Well, I mean, the one that sticks out is – that, that's that's glaring Go. is the one from Richmond where Michael Walter Pracing brought well, out a caution to right. really affect the race. Okay, right? so in that regard, in that in that sense, they never. I don't think that they ever went after the the idea of an intentional spin. They went after the radio chatter, uh, car one of their cars pitting multiple times to get up, to to drop down through the standings. They went after really the sequence of events after Clint spun out. They never, I think, went to Clint or or solely put the spotlight on the did Clint spin, did Clint not spin. That was never really, in my mind, in that experience, the discussion. I thought it was. I thought that, it was the team order. Yeah, the direction. The team order to cause a caution. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that. You know, we, we all, as the public now, the public uh, court of opinion went after, oh, you know, Clint scratching his itch and all that. Um, <laughs> That's right. Right. So the, the court of public opinion formed that idea that, yeah, Clint spun out on purpose and then this happened, that happened, that happened. I think uh, Brian Vickers was asked to come to Pit Road for no damn reason at all. And, and, and then there was a lot of radio chatter that was easily easy to piece together what was going on there. And I think that nobody ever went went back and said, you know what, we're going to penalize Clint Boyer for spinning out intentionally. That never happened. Um, that was there was never. A, I have to disagree that there was a precedent set for intentional spinning at that moment. Now there has been times when guys have stopped on the racetrack to cause cautions, and they've gotten in trouble. They've gotten called to the hauler. If you have a flat tire and you just parked the car, well, that's pretty, that's the yeah. same thing in my mind as intentionally spinning out. You're causing a yellow. You're trying to stop. You're trying to stop the race so that you can no longer be lapped and get to pit road with with minimal collateral damage to your race, right? And 
so that has happened before. I was penalized. I was penalized for spinning out intentionally, but I got out of the car and bragged about it. You know, and that's a different scenario than what happened. Bristol, at Martinsville, Martinsville, yeah. Bristol, at Bristol, Bristol. Right, you got called to the hollow. That's the one where you and the yeah. Aries, I got so you. That, that was um well no that was different that was a different <laughs> Bristol yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I you know I, I I just feel like that there's not a precedent set for intentional spinning it's something that's probably happened a lot throughout the sport uh and it probably will happen a lot more I don't think that we need a rule or I don't think we need NASCAR governing I think that that's something where the drivers get together and say hey what are we doing here all right I agree with that I, I like that uh, approach to it um I think that for it to really matter, and this is just my opinion, you can tell me it's completely out there, but uh, it needs to be drivers that weren't completely affected by the outcome. In other words, somebody, like you said, trusted drivers, yeah. right? Somebody that doesn't like the look of the sport. Like, it's, the, it's an integrity issue, not, oh, you screwed my race issue. Because, of course, anybody that had their race screwed, like Kyle, uh, Kyle Larson did, is not going to be happy with Bubba Wallace. Mm-hmm. The question is, are you not happy with Bubba Wallace if it didn't affect your race whatsoever, if it's an integrity issue? And then maybe it'll change uh, maybe it won't, but I'm saying is that to me that that matters more than oh you screwed up my race because that means you're just taking it uh, situationally. Yeah, that you know that that's not a that's not a legit uh, you know beef. Uh, it, but so, anyways, that's just one of my thoughts there. Um, well, if 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 we're if if we are going to hold NASCAR accountable for throwing bogus yellows, then as you know, as a driver on the racetrack, I, I mean, again. I know I've done it. Come at me. I, I have been, I'm guilty of doing it, and everybody is. I think if Larson came up to Bubba and said, hey, I'm in this championship battle. I just pitted. I was running in the top five, having a great day, and that sucked. Um, and I don't know that, you know, I can't expect Bubba to go into every race going, hmm, I don't want to ruin somebody's day. What could be happening to this guy and that guy, and I don't want to. I don't want to screw somebody over. He's not. It's not going to imprint in his mind to think about Kyle Larson every time he has a flat. How can he? Right. But I think if he could understand how that affected somebody who's in a real serious situation to try to race for that championship, you know, maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity uh, to race for a title. And 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 I like your idea as well, Mike, is adding in a trusted veteran, somebody that. This is not. This is not to single out bubble. This is just. This is just maybe the press. You know something going forward as far as how to be how to be handling that situation. I don't uh, know that they got a trusted veteran that, to be honest with that that would carry that much weight. I mean, Harvick maybe I guess. Yeah, I is, think is that right? Yeah, Harvick. Um, I don't know. You know, Jimmy Johnson. Um, yeah, there's, you're there's right. Several. There are several. there's several guys in there. The other thing that was interesting this past weekend, and I I, I don't know if you guys, I mean, y'all probably didn't see it. And uh, I don't know if this is that big a deal, but it pissed me off when it happened. During the driver's intros on Sunday on the big hoss, big giant screen on the back straightaway. So the drivers are, there's a driver's intro stage and they're walking out of that stage facing the front grandstands. So behind them on this big, big screen was a bunch of one-liners that were terrible. Like Parker Klingerman came out to driver's introduction. Hey, Parker Klingerman from such and such town, starting in about 30, whatever, and driving the da da da. And then on the big hoss, it said, Parker Klingerman, even wrecks on iRacing. Whoa, really? Are and you serious? That was a nice one. 
That oh man, they were mean. They were very mean. Some of them pretty bad, like uh, Garrett Smithley's already in the way or something like that. <laughs> that was his. They were really oh wow aggressive. Um, that is aggressive. Roast sort of roast Ro- worthy. Yeah, yeah. Ro- and 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 so all right. It popped up on my Twitter. One of the journalists down in the media center was like, "Man, I, that's strange. Those things are weird. Whoever had, whoever wrote those has some balls." And I'm sitting there in in the TV booth watching it. The drivers don't see it. They're coming out, and and this isn't about hurting the drivers' feelings. They don't care, right? They're going to run a race. It's more about perception, all right. And so the drivers are coming out to getting introduced, and then there's these one-liners on the big hoss that only the people in the stands and, and can see, and they're really bad <laughs> and aggressive. And um, in my mind, I'm thinking, what are we doing? Like, what what are we are we are we building our are we building are we building the sport up, or are we just tearing it down? That, that that's such a parental approach. It's like I, you know, you say to your kids, "Did that build somebody up, or did that tear them down? What yeah. did that, What did you accomplish with that?" Yeah. Okay. And 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 somebody on my social media timeline's like, "Oh, get over it, man. You know, it's are we going to get butt hurt about everything that happens? I mean, these drivers, if it hurts their feelings, uh, you know, they they need to have thicker skin, and it's not really about that." At all, I, I, mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not worried about the driver's feelings. It's more about perception of. All right, imagine, you know, 1987 All Star Race. Remember that brawl they had yeah. that race? How great that was! Yeah, for the sport, probably not good for Bill Elliott. But um, imagine the intros: Dale Earnhardt <laughs> from Canapolis, North Carolina, wrecks everybody. <laughs> Terry Labonte, Corpus Christi, Texas, can't drive a nail. <laughs> I mean, why would we imagine those intros <laughs> happening during the spectacle of the of the pre-race at Daytona for the 500? An honored traditional event, right? Um, you know, you go through this sport, you go through the season with all this pride and, and excitement and trying to, tr- you know, we're working so damn hard to change a perception of, of, the package, whether the racing's good, how whether we have great personalities. I mean, we're busting our ass. Everybody, the drivers, the industry, and then we have something like that. I mean, it was just a small thing, mm. right? And it's not and, – and only a tiny group of people saw it. Okay, but let me ask you, were, were any of them personal or were they all driving I would say they related? were personal. There was a couple in there personal. I wish – Oh, man. Go ahead. That sort of reminds me of uh, some of them were pretty personal. California Speedway made that big mistake a few years ago, letting the fans online just submit superlatives. Yeah, and it got disgusting. Yeah, Mm. and it was a PR nightmare for it. It was disgusting. Well, I don't even remember that. See, so this 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 probably isn't going to be remembered by anybody either. But if when I go to Texas, I sort of have my guard up. You know what I mean? Um, back when me and Teresa were sort of having a disagreement or, or you know, a, a, a public sort of quarrel about, you know, whether I was going to stay at DEI or leave, um, they had billboards on the highway outside the racetrack Oof. about the wicked stepmother and all that stuff. And it was it was uncomfortable. And I felt at times over the line, you know, and personal. Um, I don't have a problem with them taking Denny and, and, and Joey and saying, hey, here's two guys that got into it last week. Buy a damn ticket. But some of those things I thought kind of were personal to the drivers, and it's not up to me to decide that. It's mm. up to that individual driver to decide whether it's personal or not. But I just wonder, you know, is that helping us or is that, you know, because 
everything for me is really about trying to create health in, in, in the sport and doing things that are good for it. And I don't know if, if I would have chosen that path um, had I had, you know, had I been putting on a race that day, I would have been talking about how all these guys are warriors and they're going to go out there and raise hell and we're lucky to be here today and it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a battle and this is a point, this is a playoff race and there's a championship on the line and so it was uh, only fitting when, you know, about 12 laps into the race, the sign blew off the fence. <laughs> yeah, um, how about that? Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> So karma, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe may, maybe spend a little more time attaching those signs, <laughs> and coming up yeah. with clever quips. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was funny. I will say, man. With all that said, Eddie Gossage is one of the best promoters that we have in a sport. You know, and I don't, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of people involved in how that race gets put on, and who, and all those sort of decisions to do that. Somebody thought that was a good idea, and I doubt it was Eddie. I don't know. Maybe it was, but I doubt it. But um. So I thought, you know what, let's let's do something funny and try to entertain somebody, and it just just was out of touch. Maybe it was. Yeah, absolutely. Swing hard uh, in case you hit it. Sometimes you're going to miss it. I guess. You know? Yeah. Did you see the news I just forwarded you guys? By the way. Uh, so Penske Corp. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell Mike what's going on. Well, ba- basically, Penske Corp has purchased uh, the IndyCar Series and Indianapolis Motor Speedway, including. Uh, you know, Indianapolis Motor Speedway productions, but but Indianapolis Motor Speedway is now a product of Penske Corp. It's mm. owned and the IndyCar series. This is monumental motorsports yeah. news. Yeah. yeah. Want, for the better, you think? You think? I, well, I, I want your opinion. I, I mean, I, I am not as immersed, I guess, in the IndyCar world for sure as I would be. I, I could certainly understand the ramifications and positives and negatives if this were happening in the NASCAR world, but, you know, knowing the kind of guy that Roger Penske is, I can't see this as a bad thing. Yeah. I think that, I guess, you know, I look at that racetrack and, and, and think about its entire history and the, the, the ups and downs and how close they came to, how close they came to losing that racetrack entirely to development at one point, um, after the war, uh, the second world war, it was just a, uh, it's just had a really interesting, delicate existence at times and when you see what it is today it's this amazing uh thing it's this incredible sporting event that is more than a race and you know to to, that it that it would carry on that it would grow and succeed is in everyone's best interest and so i i think that this is a move that's a positive um it'll be interesting i think uh certainly i'm curious to read comments from those in that world drivers other owners and so forth as to how they view this move but if it sounds like to me it's in very good hands going forward which is a good thing cool i think that was a solid open segment is there anything you want to add mike oh no. you did go hunting you saw some deer yeah uh, any bucks uh the uh not yesterday but the day before i had a uh, they're they're starting to chase does <laughs> So that that was what I was looking yeah. for. I went um, <laughs> hunting with uh, Martin uh, this week, and we had great success. You did, you did, y'all, y'all, uh, yeah. y'all, y'all uh, monsters. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I would, monsters. Yeah. And if you had, let me ask you a question: If you had killed a big buck, would you have posted that picture on Instagram? If I'm you, no. If I'm me, maybe. Yeah. But maybe not. Right. I, I'd have to think about it. And I know why you're asking that. And, and, and because if I'm you, and I know you, 
you don't like making people upset. I mean, in just in general. And I know that that sounds like a very cliche thing, but but there are people that don't mind it. Kyle Petty, he posts a picture and not think twice about it. He don't care what other people think. You do. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's to your credit, I think. So no, I wouldn't have posted it. Um, I but but for me, I would have to think about it, and I probably um, because I represent you. Mm-hmm. I think that we all in our social media feeds, even though they're personal feeds, we always have to use logic. Um, and you know, if it ever brought even one person brought heat on you, I probably would have to think. You know, in my role, I would probably choose not to. Gotcha. But I tell I tell everybody about it. <laughs> yeah, I guess telling everybody it's it's one thing. Um. I yeah. I, I was a little torn because we were taking pictures of of this awesome deer that that I'd got, and uh, Truex had the same had the same experience, and just two amazing, amazing, beautiful bucks that we were able to get. And it, I have been hunting solely exclusively on this one piece of property for the last five years, and this is in those five years and multiple multiple hunts the second deer I've gotten. So it's uh and, and and I passed on a lot of deer. I passed on some bucks that I just was like, you know, don't want that deer. Doesn't excite me. Doesn't yeah. you know? I don't need that deer. Or I don't want to. I don't want to mount that deer. And I don't know what that means for my hunting career because well, I have I have this idea in my mind, and I don't you know that I I just got to get bigger and bigger every deer. Every deer I shoot, the next one's got to be bigger than the last one, right? And so you, that's a real unrealistic sort of goal because right now I'm near, I'm, I'm, you know, sitting there looking for a 170 or 180 to walk out, and that's not going to happen. And so, which I think too also keeps me from being just careless and just shooting, sure. shooting a lot of deer that aren't unnecessarily need to be shot. And it helps us sort of manage the herd that we have as well and grow. And I'm, I'm really enjoying more about learning what we're doing with the land and why we're doing it. We move the crops. Why do you move crops around? Why, mm. you gotta, why do you need to change the crops in this field year after year after year and, uh, for, the, for the health of the soil and so forth? And moving, understanding the movements of the deer. I had no idea uh, that deer do what they do and travel as far as they go. I mean, when they go in rut, those bucks... It's crazy how far they'll go. They lose their mind chasing yeah, the girls. I it mean, is. they just do. <laughs> they literally <laughs> they literally put their head down and run for freaking weeks. Yeah. It's crazy. With and their I, with their tongues hanging out. You'll see them on the cameras. <laughs> I know some people like that. Well, you'll see them on the cameras and they've been eating and eating and eating and they're all big and huge and then they'll go in the rut and they'll literally lose you know dozens and dozens and dozens of pounds. Yeah. By the end of rut, you'll see them on camera running around with their tongue hanging out because they've been running literally for weeks, yeah. uh, chasing these does, trying to find something in heat. It's just so crazy. Uh, but I enjoy it. I love it. But I do feel that sort of. Uh, I, I, I wish I could. You'd love to get to a point where you could, where everybody could appreciate it and see it through the ethical lens in which you see it, yes. and that is hard to do because nobody yeah. sees. Things the same. Yeah, <laughs> just, right. They just don't. <laughs> you're right. So it's better. It's almost better to just not yeah. get in the middle of it. But but I tell you this. Um, you, you, I saw that deer. You should be proud. I am that, very that proud. Is, that is a. It looked like a mule deer. Yeah. I mean, it was huge. Uh, True X. Oh, was did I tell huge. you how it happened? How, 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 no, how, no. Okay, go okay, get no. Just so awesome. All right. So this is this is the experience. 
and uh, and 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 the people that like to deer hunt, you'll love this. If you didn't, if you don't like to deer hunt, maybe it's cool. Anyways, just skip, skip this part. Get to <laughs> yeah. David Hobbs. Yeah, <laughs> we um, I'm, it was a morning hunt, and I we had put a stand in the woods about probably twenty yards off a off a tree line, expecting obviously the deer to be feeding out in this field, <clears throat> and um, mm. and so I would sneak in through the woods, get up in the stand, and I'm waiting for the deer to to come out the field and hopefully come by the stand instead of going in all the other directions they can go, right? And I only bow hunt, all right? So I need these deer to get within 20 to 30 yards of me, right? I don't want, I'm not going to shoot beyond 30 yards. I'm not, I don't trust my shot. I don't need to wound them or, or miss or, or, or injure them in any way. So I'm going to make sure that, you know, it's a 30 yard shot or less. And so I'm, I had, I had hunted, within eyesight of this particular stand the day before the morning before about 60 yards away we had another stand so you put two stands that close together for the wind depending on how the wind's going to blow you can hunt either stand and so the morning before i was sitting in one stand and i saw the deer come in out of the field and they went by this chain up that was about 60 yards away so the next morning the wind turned and it was just right for that chain up and i'm like that's where i want to be that's where the deer went now, I only saw does the day before, so chances are I'm going to go back and see just does again. But if it is, if they are starting to rut, the bucks are just starting to rut, maybe they're going to be chasing these does a little bit because it was right on the verge of the rut really kicking in. Sure enough, the next morning, uh, I'm in that stand seeing the same does kind of come right by me that I'd seen the morning before. And I looked into the tree line to to sort of view the field that I was hunting over and... Uh, Again, it's about 20 yards to the tree line. I can't really, I can see movement in the field, but I can't really tell whether it's, uh, you know, a big deer or a little deer. But I could see through the through the webbing in the tree line the mass in this rack mm-hmm. of this buck, and I couldn't see the body. I couldn't see the head or this or count horn, you know, count the count the rack or see the points. But I could see the mass in the webbing, and I thought that's a big buck. I got my bow ready. And when he comes in, if he walks toward that tree line and comes into this sort of pathway that these other doe have used, I've got to decide really quickly whether I like what I see. And so he pops his head in there and takes a look into the woods right on that path. I'm like, sure, he's coming. He's going to walk right by me just like these doe did. He looks in there, huge, giant deer, way outside the ears, really wide, nine point, big nine. He turned his head out of the woods, back to the field, and then went and walked down the tree line in the field away from me. Mm. So he didn't come in the woods. And I was like, oh, crap. That was it, right? But I had this grunt call, and it wasn't... I, I'm, I've not used a grunt call hardly at all uh, before, but I've practiced a lot, watched a lot of YouTube videos. Me too, yeah. To Truex yeah. about it. Yeah. Truex is a really great hunter. Yeah. I happened to just ask Martin the day before. I said, listen, man, just try to talk to me about this grunt call again. I don't need to be just grunting for the hell of it. Right. right? Yeah. Like it's a party right. announcement. I don't just, if, <laughs> I don't, and he's like, nah, probably only grunt when you have a buck walking away. If you got a buck and you'd like to bring him in, try to grunt then, but only then. If, you know, if, if you don't see any deer, probably just don't be grunting for no reason. And I thought, okay, I got to just remind myself because I'll sit in that stand and if I decide, you know what, I'm getting out at 10 in the morning and it's 930, I'm going to grunt just to see. All right. That's what I would do. But Trix is like, nah, just only grunt when you see them bucks and they're not coming your direction. 
So here I am. I grabbed that grunt call and I grunted. And I'm like, I hope that he thinks this is another deer and not some idiot in the stand, right? I hope this sounds natural. And he turned and looked back toward me and then turned his head and started walking away further. Oh, walking away. Gotcha. Yep, didn't do it. Okay. So I grunted one more time. He stuck his head up in there and turned and ran toward the tree. Whoa. Ran like he was coming in there to whoop whose ever ass that was in that in that in the woods. That is so cool. He's like, I'm gonna kick this I'm gonna kick this yeah. in the bucks yeah. ass. Yeah. That, but that because that's how they think. Yeah. Right now in, during this time. Right? right. So he come running in there, and as soon as I seen him turn and run, I'm like, oh crap, I gotta get my bow again. So I grab my <laughs> bow and I I put the release on and I'm ready to draw. And he comes walking in there and I'm looking at his rack and I'm thinking yeah, that's absolutely a deer oh, yeah. that I would want to have, and drew back, and it was awesome. He um, he was uh, it, we track we we waited a couple hours and then went out there and 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 tracked him and cleaned him up and yeah. sent him off to get mounted. We we take a lot of the uh, we took we took we we kept some of the meat, brought it home. We actually ate some of the meat uh, while Oof. we were there, yeah, and uh, donate the rest. It's a good hunt, a lot of fun. Oh, y'all donate. That's that's good. There's a lot to donate there. If that was a big deer, yeah. But uh, that that is by far my favorite thing to eat is venison. I mean, it I was, is uh, we, so good. Yeah, we ate really, you really eat good. It in so many different ways. Trix is uh, Trix had a relative come in, and uh, one of his buddies uh, from way back in Jersey came oh, yeah. down and brought a smoker and cooked oh. all week, and uh, so we ate some good food. You're and welcome. my uncle uh, Robert cooked some turkey that we had shot at a hunt before. And uh, so it's great, man. A lot of fun. Well, good. Congrats. Thank you. I have some Twitter poll results. Oh, hey. If, if you're interested. Um, 94% absolutely. Only 6% of people. <laughs> we might to take should. A break. No, we might should, you know, consider it then. That was pretty overwhelming. Some of the people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost 750 votes in half nice. an hour. So, yeah. Oh. So people don't want us to take a break. Goodness. I'm more tickled by the 6%. They're like, no, definitely <laughs> do not. We're done yeah. with you guys. Don't do an off-season anything. <laughs> that was me, sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Quick update in fantasy football. Lost to my wife this weekend. That was Ooh. a tough one. What's that like? Yeah. Nice, because I like when she's happy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, before we bring in our guests, let's make sure our teeth are clean. Yeah, I mean, it's important. Yeah. yeah don't want to be rude. we got to have bright teeth and our breath smelling good. Yeah. And the only way to do that is with Quip. Quip was created by dentists mm. and product designers. So dentists and product designers got together. Yeah. They focused on what actually matters for your oral health. <laughs> Glad that dentists were yeah, And that's healthier habits, Mike. Got it. All right. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer guide gentle brushing. For the dentist recommended two minutes. All right, two minutes. With 30-second pulses, ensuring an even clean. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months. All right, Mike? I mean, that's important. Yeah. You know, so, so, well, you got to change them heads, man. Yeah. Things get all twirled to hill. Yeah. Uh, you need new bristles. Right on schedule. Every three months. The sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. I like that travel cap, man. I don't like my brushes... Working around in my in my bag with my hairbrush and yeah. and my you know everything else in there. Yeah, germs, man. Gross. Yeah, and I'm yeah yeah can't do that. These thoughtful features make brushing something you actually want to do twice a day. Some people might want to do more. 
Good habits matter to live a healthier life. So here comes that tongue twister. Help form fresh oral health habits with Quip. Woohoo! Help form fresh oral health habits with Quip. That's wow. easy to say, actually. <laughs> you got it. I like using my Quip on the road. Traveling the NASCAR schedule for NBC. Dillner, I know you're actually a first-time electronic toothbrush user. Uh, what do you think about your Quip? I've never wanted to brush my teeth. Like, you do it because you, you yeah. don't want your teeth to fall out, but that, that it's literally enjoyable. Now you want to. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I, I went to a, a Quip electronic toothbrush, and I can't go back. I mean, I can't. I feel like when I'm using uh, a regular toothbrush, it's not doing anything. Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think if you use electronic, uh, you, you know what I mean. I feel like when I'm brushing with a Quip, it's, it's cleaning more. Right. Even though my hand's making the same motion, I'm getting more accomplished. You have to try it to understand. Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com. Getquip.com slash Dale Jr. D-A-L-E. JR, this is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better. But you have to go to getquip.com, getquip, Q-U-I-P.com slash Dale Jr. to get your first refill free. Go right now to getquip.com slash Dale Jr. You've been using your Quip. It's obvious. <laughs> look at them things. <laughs> they look good. They look, they look good, yeah. don't they? Yeah. I'm t- yeah, I use my Quip. David Hobbs. Uh-oh. Oh, here he is. I still made that. What's that? What? Oh, man, if it was, I mean, I bet you've got some. No, that's Buddy Baker, but uh, yeah, God, you, you do look like him. <laughs> now, I had a, I got a picture like that when I drove that car in 76. You drove yeah. that car? Well, he drove eight. No, I drove eight car. I drove eight. Oh, eight. Oh, Vanny Parsons' backup. So usually, um, David Hobbs, thank you for coming. Usually, oh, thank David, you for asking me. Yeah, usually I uh, start at the beginning and ask the guests uh, what their first race car was or what prompted them to get started in racing. But I don't want to do that today. I've got to get something off my chest, David. I was introduced to you uh, not as a driver, but as a broadcaster, and not just any broadcaster, like a broadcaster that covered, in my opinion, what is the most important NASCAR broadcast. Uh, that was ever and ever will be uh, the 1979 Daytona 500. All right, David, I have watched that broadcast more than a dozen times. He has. I have. <laughs> I um, I ride around in my car with it, playing in the DVD player. <laughs> he does. I have. Uh, before I met my wife, it's what I would go to sleep listening to. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, if they ever make time travel commercially available, I'm going to go to the 1979 Daytona 500. And then after that, I'm going to go back to 1979 and watch that race in my grandmother's living room with her. Mm. Um, on a tube television, of course. That, that's right. Um, did you realize, I guess, in that moment, what you guys were a part of? You know, I don't think we did, although Ken Squire, who is really responsible for all of that, uh, I still say every time I'm asked to speak on the subject, I always say that NASCAR should be paying Ken Squire a million bucks a year (laughs) because, I mean, he really did put NASCAR on the map. Absolutely. I joined CBS in 1976, and we did a bit of everything. You know, we did Formula One. We did some – well, we didn't do many sports car races. We did Le Mans once. Uh, And we did some NASCAR, but they were all – to tape. So we used to go to the studio in the middle of the night in New York or Chicago 
and we would put uh, voice over on on race, on NASCAR races, so they're obviously delayed, you know, a week right. or two delayed. Oh yeah, and uh, that voiceover stuff is very difficult because it's all the the video's all timed out, so you have to speak exactly to the video. Oh no, nice. it's hard to do. Yeah, I've never. And then never all this time, right? Ken kept saying to NAS uh, to uh, CBS, his bosses at CBS. You know, NASCAR's where it's at. That's where it's all going to be at. Well, of course, living up in New York then, back in the 70s and 60s, NASCAR didn't mean, he didn't mean nothing to them, you know? <laughs> them, old, them old rednecks from down yeah. south. Yeah. Well, what do they know about New York? And uh, anyway, um, in 75, I went to be interviewed by CBS to, to get the job. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> talk about cringe embarrassment. I mean, it was the worst interview I ever did. I mean, sweat was pouring down my chest and down the back of my neck. And this guy's asked me questions about, obviously knew nothing about racing at all. Uh, well, I won the Formula 5000 championship. What's Formula 5000? Oh. Well, <clears throat> it's kind of like Formula 1, about the same speed as Formula 1, but stock in. Uh, uh, have you ever won Indianapolis? No, I haven't. I've done it, but I've never won. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not impressed, he said. <laughs> I mean, when I went out the door, if ever there was a don't call us, we'll call you, that was it. Well, ironically and extraordinarily luckily for me, that was in about September, October 75. In 1976, I went to do the Daytona 24-hour race with BMW and Benny Parsons, was, and he, he and I were driving together. And as a quid pro quo, I got some Coca-Cola sponsorship. He was going to put me in his backup car for the 500. So, uh, and that same guy that had interviewed me, finally, after Ken kept pulling and pulling and pulling, came down to look at the Daytona 500. Yeah. And he and his wife came to town, and we were on the Ken. I was on the Ken Squire show at the Hawaiian Inn on the beach there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I'd had about two or three gin and tonics. So <laughs> I was sort of right on top of the cam and I hadn't sort of started, <laughs> hadn't started to go around the backside. And uh, anyway, this guy, Clarence Cross, his name was, was there with his wife. And I went on for about 10 minutes and Ken and I had the whole place hysterics. I mean, Richard Petty was there and the Yard, Kale Yard was there. Well, most of the guys were there because they all liked Ken's show. And this guy, Clarence Cross, had come down specifically to look at NASCAR with a view to CBS taking it on. Um, so I did about a five-minute stick, and it was all very funny. And when I sat down, his wife said, my gosh, she said, you shouldn't be driving race cars. You should be on the stage. Oh, so wow. I said, well, don't, don't tell me. Tell him. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, that got me onto CBS. But it also ultimately, obviously, at that visit, sowed to see, and I drove in the 500, not very well, but I did drive in the 500. Well, I say that. I mean, I qualified on, I came eighth in the race on Thursday, which can't be that bad. No, it's um, good. Although, on the first lap of the big race, when I'm now on the eighth row, and those days those cars took a bit of getting up to speed. <laughs> you're picking up speed, and you finally get around to turn three, and now by the time you come off turn four, you're about up to speed. And I'm in the middle of this pack, and there's smoke and dust, and you can smell the concrete where the odd guy's scraping down the concrete. You smell the tire smoke where they're all touching each other. And I'm in the middle of this pack thinking, have I done the right thing here? <laughs> Probably not what I should be doing. Yeah. You're questioning your but, life decisions yeah, as you're no, free wide. But, yeah, that's funny. But that's all beside the point. The thing was that um, Clarence was there and obviously took back good reports to CBS. And... Um, and in 1979, as I was still working for CBS, I was part of the broadcast team. Big Bill 
did not like the idea at all. He thought it was the worst thing they could do because he thought it would take away from the gate. So it was wow. black, blacked out in Florida, blacked out in uh, uh, um, Georgia, Alabama, maybe even North Carolina or or South Carolina. But, but I mean, he blacked out a lot. And, I mean, everything was like, like a, you know, you couldn't read about it, really. You couldn't write a story like that because the race was was okay. Um, wow. And, of course, Kale and uh, Donnie Allison were duking it out for the lead, and they were way gone, you know, and they were just followed each other around. And, uh, you know, well, you all know what happened. Of course, on the last lap, I'm not quite sure who went down on who, but, I mean, the next thing is they're both on the apron going to three, and then they go up, uh, one of them goes up and hits the wall, and then all hell breaks loose. They start this fight. And old Kale, you know, he had a bit of a comb over job. Well, of course, when he took his helmet off, uh, this hair is all now is wafting around out here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's fighting Donnie. Meanwhile, everybody's hero, Richard Petty, comes through from a distant third to take his umpteenth win at the yeah. of 500. So half the crowd think that's the best thing since sliced bread. Meanwhile, Bobby Allison, who finishes, I don't know, second or third, yeah, he goes round on the slowing down lap. So he jumps out the car down at three and joins in the fracker. And, of course, Ken Squire's going mad in the booth. And the, the icing on the cake was that up in New York, up in the northeast, they had a terrific snowstorm. Mm-hmm. So everybody was stuck at home. And mm. they had... they. I mean, they're thinking they're going to get, you know, maybe a couple of three million, maybe. And I think they had like six and a half, seven million people watching this race. Yeah. Uh, and the dramatic end was just, you couldn't, like, you couldn't read it. You couldn't write it. Yeah. And uh, so that, did we know that, um, you know, this was going to be like the, the absolute moment for, Na- as it happened, it was the absolute turning point for NASCAR because then, uh, you know, CBS were going to do Talladega 500, Michigan 400. Yep. And uh, uh, we always used to do the Charlotte race too, the 600. Um, and it just transformed because then suddenly all the TV networks are knocking themselves over to to do NASCAR. And uh, as you say, I mean, it was really the quintessential moment for NASCAR. It just, it just put them right on the map. Yeah. I wonder, as a broadcaster... So back in those days, obviously we broad we cover the practices and the qualifying, and um, I remember even just some some short time ago practices and qualifying they weren't on TV, but I know that there's a lot of preparation that goes into broadcasting a race, and I'm certainly that I'm certain that in that moment you and Ken were both making sure that you had every I dotted and every T crossed throughout the week. So you're at Daytona for Speed Weeks getting ready to broadcast that race. What's your preparation like? It was a big deal. I mean, you know, CBS really did push the boat out. I mean, they didn't mess about. Uh, our director was uh, Mike. Uh, he used to do – he was one of the top baseball guys. All Everybody was new to racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the producer, the production levels were very high. We had, you know, we had hundreds of big crew. And what was then regarded as a lot of cameras, but probably by today's standards, it would be pretty yeah. weak. Obviously, we had we didn't have any onboards then. That, that, well, the, that was the, to come. The, no, there was one. Benny Parsons had the onboard, and it sort of half worked. Yeah, well, 
and he fell out with with some mechanical problems. But that thing was huge and weighed yeah. several hundred pounds. <laughs> well, that was the thing, and uh, the teams were very reluctant to put them in because right. they, they sure. weighed a lot. And of course, the, the guys putting them in, the crews putting them in, uh, it took a lot of time. And of course, the crews, you know, the, right. the, car, the car crew. Didn't like that at all because it really did. It was pretty time consuming. They still don't. They, <laughs> that's true. Dale Jr.'s got stories with uh, Tony Yuri about the, yeah. the getting well, mad I, about those cameras. Yeah, because the expertise for those cameras then, funny enough, didn't come from here. It came from Australia. Really? Channel, Channel Seven in Australia that Lee Diffie used to, to work with. They had some guru. They, they put them in their cars in the Bathurst One Thousand, which is a sedan car race around this yeah. big mountain yeah. circuit just outside Sydney. And these were the guys that were doing that. And then uh, the, the, when we really got serious about it, a couple of years later, we had one in, in Kale's car. And these guys, in, all through practice, they're saying, we got this funny kind of um, feedback. We, can't, we don't know what it is. You know, we looked at all the wiring and we looked at this and we looked at that and go out again. And God, it's still there. You know, what the hell is it? It's some sort of feedback. <laughs> It turned out that Kale, <laughs> when, he's, when he's driving, <laughs> mimics the engine. So he's going, he's, <laughs> he, he's sitting there, there going, <laughs> and these guys are looking all over the place for some sort of wiring malfunction. Yes. <laughs> and it's all the time, it's all the time, it's Kale going, <laughs> So this is this I believe is like the 1983 or 84 Daytona 500. Yeah, and if you, he won the race, right? Then he, yeah. and if you listen to the broadcast, you can hear it. You can hear <laughs> Kale in there going. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, well, there you go. That's, and the first year they just didn't know what the hell it was. I don't think that anybody to this day. I mean, I don't know. That, I don't know that I've ever heard that story told. Publicly, like like Dillner, you're a, you're a historian, and you've ne- just, never heard that Carol Yarborough, Carol Yarborough mimicked the engine entirely, <laughs> causing the producers all kinds of imagine chaos. his whole right. career. I wonder what he did on the short tracks. That's hysterical. <laughs> what did he, what did he do for the brakes? Right, right. <laughs> what did he do for the crashes? <laughs> Pow! <laughs> <laughs> Owie! <laughs> yeah, owie, yeah. Yeah, but so if you get back to that 79 uh, Daytona race, you just said at the beginning that, um, you know, those people in New York just look at NASCAR, some southern yeah. rednecks, you know, just a bunch of rednecks down there. After the race, did you go, yep, that's well, about what we saw, it's a bunch of rednecks fighting on the, uh, on well, the infield? I, I, well, no, I, you know, whatever, they, they obviously they enjoyed the fight, um, probably more than the well, race. most but, rednecks do. But, I mean, that. Uh, <laughs> But, I mean, as far as uh, CBS was concerned, I mean, it just changed their whole outlook to the, to the whole thing. And, of course, the racing itself by then was actually pretty sophisticated. The cars were getting – I mean, I, I drove that car of Benny's. They were a bit basic then, but nowadays, I mean, they're just real so state-of-the-art. I mean, you guys actually – I think NASCAR spend more time in the wind tunnel than Formula One yeah. because the car is supposed to look kind of like the real thing. And you want to eke out that extra tenth of a second – an extra tenth over the two and a half miles by some sort of aero work. Right. It's difficult to achieve, so they have to spend hours in the wind tunnel, a little bit of a tweak here, a bit of a tweak there, but they're still going to fit the template and a lot of other stuff. So uh, it, obviously these days, I mean, it's incredibly sophisticated because you've had to go look at the times and the speeds and that sort of stuff to, to realize that this is real racing. And, yeah. um, and and CBS got it, and like I say, they jumped right in on it, and we did, all the other, we did quite a few of the other races, including the 
it, it gradually wound down until they only did um, Daytona, Talladega 500 in August, and uh, the Michigan 400. Yeah. And we did that for, and I worked for, the, I did, uh, I did 18, 500, 17 500s and 17 Michigans and 17. I was in the booth for about 10 years and then um, I was replaced uh, and uh, they put me in the pits, which is not really my ideal. Because to be yeah. in the pits, you really need to be a reporter. Right. I'm, not a, I'm not a reporter, I'm a driver. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so that wasn't. I understand exactly what you're talking about. That wasn't my place, really. Yeah. We get to, uh, with, with NBC. <laughs> Uh, there's a couple of weekends where they'll stick me in the garage for a practice or two just to make sure I remember what, what how hard that job is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that I have good respect for Kelly Stavis and Marty, <laughs> Marty Snyder and those guys that are doing that but job. But for you, I mean, I was always very amazed but how well received I was in the garage by right. all the drivers at the time, including your dad, uh, because I was amazed that so many of them knew who I was. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. I was sort of, you know, I'd won a lot of races, but... I didn't think they'd be interested in other racing. Well, of course, it turns out they're incredibly interested in other racing, yeah. especially the Formula One. Everybody sits glued to the Formula One down in in the, in the garage area. So uh, I was well, I was impressed with that, and uh, I had an experience, an experience with your dad. Um, I was in the pit. By now, I'm in the pits at the Michigan 400, and he he dropped out. And as you know, your dad was a very intimidating guy. They didn't call him the intimidator for nothing. And everybody tiptoed around him all the time because he was pretty volatile. Anyway, we finally get, and you, you know what it's like in the garage, you're yeah. doing, a, doing an interview. That you got the guy, he's just come out of some horrendous crash. So he's all hyped up, the adrenaline's flowing. You know, you know, you know how you feel. I mean, you're, you're on edge. And the director says over the headset, uh, "We're just going to commercial." Oh my god! You know. Yes. Oh. So can you just can you just hang on a minute now? Sure. When he looks at me and he's there, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we do the interview. <laughs> he goes back inside the truck, you know, inside the motor, uh, and they said, uh, uh, "Unfortunately, we didn't get that properly. Can you, oh, can you oh do no. it? Can you do it again?" Oh. So, I mean, talk about. How exactly am I going to ask Dale to do that again? You know? oh. And he, he was just as good as gold. Hey, Dave, I understand these things. Sorry, sorry it didn't work. <laughs> he came did you out go of, up in really? there? Yeah. How did you do it? Well, I, I, don't, quite, I don't remember the full gory detail. <laughs> 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 it must have been very intimidating. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Earnhardt. <laughs> it's your old pal, Davey Hobbs, here. <laughs> we, we just thought that was a rehearsal. We'd like to do it again. I don't know why I said it, but anyway, he came out again. It was good as gold. So, but it was a bit unnerving. I bet. Yeah. So that's funny because when y'all were when y'all were doing the 1979 Daytona 500, he was just this, you know, this kid from Canapolis. Yeah. And and I don't know, you know, then to see you you do all those races and he transforms himself and his persona into this sort of intimidating thing because he wasn't when he first ran the 1979 Daytona 500. Oh. Well, there's nothing intimidating about him, um, but uh, so it's funny that he sort of had that <laughs> had that effect on people, even the people that knew him for so long. Yeah, well, uh, you know, he he kept himself to himself pretty much, but like you say, in 1979 when he was just really getting going, I mean, he was the problem then. Yeah, uh, not not a real problem to talk to at all. And uh, the real the top guys, you know, as you know, were Richard Petty and Cale Yarbrough, yeah. the bro the Allison brothers. Who was the um. Who was, the, who was the best guy to work with? Like there was a, who was the best interview? And as far as the, the back in the cup days, probably in the early eight, in the eighties, throughout the eighties. Well, quite honestly, it was Daryl. Yeah, 
I, I always used to say to the guys that uh, back at production meetings and when we're all having dinner and, you know, getting completely smashed. I mean, having, <laughs> having a quiet evening drink. Uh, I used to say then, I tell you what, that kid, Daryl Walter, I said, when he retires, I said, he's got, he's got a job absolutely for sure. He'll, he'll be in television. Wow. And there he yeah. was. Because he was a great interview. I mean, he always got something stupid to say, something funny to say. But at the same time, obviously, he was very coherent and knew exactly what he was talking about so he was a great interview uh he, he i remember him particularly some of the others were a bit ner- always a bit nervous you know and they, they're so big and ballsy on the track but you you get him in front of the camera and they sort of bit like you really you know yeah. <laughs> shy shy yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so uh no i mean it, he, he was a good interview yeah how yeah. how well did they receive you though you you spoke about it a little bit i mean you you came from a lot of big time racing in in uh we're well known, and and a lot of times, that whole, that 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 paradox or that paradigm when people cross over into other, uh, you know, f- forms of racing, sometimes it's not received well. Sometimes it is. How was it for you? Well, as I say, I, I was always terribly impressed at, with the NASCAR guys how 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 well I was received because I thought you know this could be a bit tough. They're going to say I was some snotty nosed elitist Formula One driver or something, but I never had any of that at all. Never did? Uh, no, and every time uh, I'd go into the garage area when I was a pit reporter, people were always terribly willing to speak to me more than they were to, say, somebody like Mike Joy, who they did regard as just a reporter. Yeah. I mean, Mike has gone on to a fantastic career, and he's one of the best out there. Um, but you were a driver. But I was a driver, and they all knew that, and they and they respected me for it, and uh, very much so. Mm. It was the same when I went to the Indy 500. I thought, there, these guys are going to get all weird. But they weren't. They were tremendously good. Yeah. In fact, when I first, very first race in the States, I was about 21, and I went to do the Daytona three-hour, which was the forerunner of the Rolex 24-hour, and it was a three-hour GT race. It was called the, uh, it was called the, the three-hour Continental. And Big Bill really wanted to internationalize his speedway. He wanted to be Daytona International Speedway. So he had a whole bunch of guys come from Europe, and, and I'm one of them. And we were all terribly well received uh, mm. at the time. And I remember being particularly Donny Allison took me sort of under his wing and showed me round and looked after me really well. So uh, always had uh, good respect from them. And, you know, when we go to the Hall of Fame meetings in, in uh, March in Daytona, the Allison brothers are always there, and uh, they all we all just get on really well together. As you get older, of course, all that competitive stuff dies away. Yeah, when you're it's still in it, everybody's looking at each other just a bit wary, like like a couple of fighting dogs or something like that. But you know, when you get when you all get old, you reminisce about the whole thing. It's all very different, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My and I'm a really really good friends with Martin Tricks Jr. and um, during our racing career, there was always this sort of hint of comp- competitiveness, <laughs> yeah. always underlying, even in some of the best moments. And now it's completely gone, like completely gone. And every time we hang out, it's there's nothing. There's there's not another. There, we're not going to run a race against each other the next weekend. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's the best. It does. I mean, Bobby uh, Bobby Unser always used to, I used to find a bit intimidating because he did a few Formula Five thousand races. Um, and I always found him a bit intimidating and a bit insular. But I mean, since he's retired, we've been to a lot of events together, and he's been marvelous. Because now he's not—he's not terribly well at the moment, and you know, got a, in a wheelchair a lot of the time. But it's—it's it's hard, and it's hard to think of someone like Bobby Unser in a wheelchair. But he—but when we were to, when we 
got together after this, after we stopped racing, I mean, our whole outlook on life just changes completely. It does. And uh, as you get older and older, because it, it changes even more, because <laughs> that light at the end of the tunnel is now getting bigger, only, <laughs> only it's a big bloody black hole at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> not a light. <laughs> That's the trouble. It's the black hole at the end of the tunnel that's getting bigger. You mentioned Ken Squire um, and working with him. Uh, one of my favorite things about Ken is what I would call the Squireisms, yeah. and it's these it's these phrases like um, you know freight train down the back straightaway uh, covering, uh, yeah. covering a covering a city block in a, you know a second or he just had these sort of things that he would say yeah. and. I how had you worked with Kim before that before the nineteen seventy nine five hundred? Uh, yeah, I worked with him all through seventy six. All right, so yeah, I'd worked with him quite a bit, and the reason I got onto CBS was actually Ken put me up for the right. job when I went for this terrible interview. Right, uh, but it had only because of he had, he had interviewed me at races and things. When he's when he's come, saying oh, yeah. some of these yeah. things next to you, what are you like? Damn, that's good. Where did that come <laughs> from? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Well, nobody's done it that way before, I think, and nobody's done it that way since. The first time you hear it is great. You know, the 700 side yeah. <laughs> loses his head a bit. But the, the big thing about Ken, you'd always got to watch him before the race started because we'd go up on the roof at Daytona. Yeah. What are you going to start? What are you going to talk about? Ken would say, well, and he'd say, what, what do you call the great American race? That was his big phrase. And, uh, I remember one one race. I can't remember which race it was. It'd be like eighty, maybe early eighties. We'd done about four by then, and <laughs> we'd gone up the bit. He said, "What are you going to talk about?" And I said, "Well, it's a lot hotter. It's the hottest day we've had this, with last three weeks by far. I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure it's going to change the track a lot because it's very much hotter. The sun's shining like it hasn't been." And the temperature's gone up like 10 degrees. Track temperature's going to go up a lot, so that'll have a big effect on the cars and where the, <coughs> and where the groove is. Um, okay, all right. <laughs> we get up there, and I mean, it's a big deal because now, yeah. now we know there's at least 8 to 9 million people out there watching us, and you're standing there in the sunshine trying to look like a, not look too much like a twerp while, he's, <laughs> while he goes off and... Uh, welcome to the 99th running or the 80, whatever the hell it was, of the Daytona 500, the Great American Race. I'm Ken Squire. And, and today on the poll is who it was on the poll and all that stuff. And, and he said, what, what's even... Today the drivers are facing a big quantity. The, the temperature's gone up. The track temperature's gone up. The groove is going to move. Uh, and he said every damn thing I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Left you with nothing. So he looked at me and said, what, 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 do, you, what do you see, Dave? I said, oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the hell to say. Yeah. <laughs> so I just repeated, said, said the same thing again. Yeah. <laughs> we talk you about did that, that a couple of times. Didn't yeah. We? Uh, we we joke about that a little bit in the booth. But you 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 don't you still quite a, obviously a lot now, and you're going to do a, you're going to be in it for the next twenty years. Uh, well, I hope so. But uh, we do any opening for the Talladega Five Hundred. Have you been in the Have you been in the booth? Well, I might have changed now, but on that horrible ladder to get into it. No, it's changed, yeah. Well, it's this awful Completely bloody ladder to get up into the little tiny yeah. booth. And we used to have an assistant, our assistant producer was Diane Keogh, Diane Patterson, she became. Anyway, that we're hunched it and we were at this Ken and I standing quite next to each other. And who else was in there with us? There's three of us. But anyway, 
there's Ken, standing there, and the cameraman's about where you are, or even closer. I mean, the lights, the camera, and all the lights. Okay, like two minutes to go, a minute to go, and I mean, with about thirty seconds to go or less, maybe forty, maybe forty-five seconds. Ken, sneeze. Ken sneezes, and this great lump of snot goes all down his tie. Oh no! <laughs> you, oh. So, <laughs> Diane Keogh said, "You, <laughs> you know, imagine a few expletives." Yeah, <laughs> whips out some bit of tissue, and it gives him. We're down. We're down to about twenty seconds to go now, and scrubs his tie, and Ken. <laughs> Uh, the, the dangers of broadcasting. It's always there's always something. There's always something happens right hey, before you go. You on know, the show. NBC now does a spy cam with Dale Jr. So now all those things that happen they at that least you can't tell, see. Yeah, yeah. Now, can you imagine having a spy cam on you during the oh entire my, thing? I you cannot. No. <laughs> <laughs> they tell us at least when we're going to be on TV. They tell you, yeah, right. Let's take a break and get comfortable. Not too comfortable that we don't get back to talking to David Hobbs, but comfy enough to get this point across, Dale. That's right, Mike. There's no more coming home and changing into sweatpants, Mm-mm. right? Not nah, right. Good Lord. Yeah, that's what I'm talking no about. No more leaving the studio, going home, and putting on those things. No. Yeah. Now you can have pants that feel as good at the podcast studio as they do at home on the couch with Public Rec. They're the first sweatpants that have waist and inseam sizing. All right, so you know what that is? Yeah, yeah I know what both are. All right, a just explain it then. And inseam sizing. Well, I mean, it's you got a waist, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a size. Yeah. And inseam sizing. Yeah, it, that's the length it, from it means your it, it, it waist means, down to your ankle. So what it's saying is, you know how sweatpants, it's like one size fits all. You're going to stretch them out or they're going to run loose. This one, it's more fit for you. Yeah, that's right. So if you're short, you're tall, somewhere in between, they fit perfectly. I like the design details, the elastic waistband with internal drawstring, the two deep front zipper pockets, Mm. and the fake front fly. It fools everybody. That's right. (laughs) I ordered a pair. At first, I figured I'd wear them just around the house. Uh, But then, you know, I liked them so much, I wore them to the podcast and, and just kept on wearing them, you know. I had Amy actually look at them before I left the house, and she said, hey, they look great. No, no problems. You know what? She probably wouldn't have let me walk out, walk out of the house in a regular pair of uh, sweatpants for sure. She said, where the hell are you going? Dressed like that. And we wouldn't let you in the studio either. Right. Oh, you, you wouldn't? No, probably not. Okay. So the window between I'm in work pants and can't wait to change and finally I can relax, that window's disappeared. <laughs> All right. At work, at home, everywhere, these public rec pants are comfy. They're suitable wherever you go. Public Rec's all-day, everyday pants are the most versatile, stylish, and comfortable pants you'll ever own. And right now, they have an exclusive offer only for our listeners. Head to publicrec.com slash Junior today, and you get 10% off your order automatically applied at the checkout. That's publicrec, rec spelled R-E-C, dot com slash Junior for 10% off. Don't sleep on this rare opportunity to get that discount. Publicrec.com slash Dale Jr. What was the um what was the th- what made you want to get into broadcasting? As you've been a driver for all these years and raced all types of race cars. What was it about broadcasting? Well, um I've always been a bit of a blabbermouth and uh um fairly fairly self assured, although like you, I'm also very shy too. But uh, I don't know, I just 
the whole thing appealed to me. And I, there wasn't so much money in racing then. I mean, obviously, we never had money like you guys had in NASCAR. Nobody did except the Formula One guys. And I wasn't in Formula One, and I wasn't in NASCAR. And so I kind of did it as a secondary income for a bit. Um, mm. And then, uh, obviously, when the racing stopped, it became my primary income. And then I started that dealership up in uh, up in Milwaukee, which we've got now, David Hobbs Honda. But yeah. uh, that came about really, you know, it's just a, another thing. Um, and I always felt that I could explain things pretty well. And um, I think over the years, I proved that I could actually explain things. And everywhere we went, you know, don't talk down to the guys like you, to the real experts. Don't talk down to the real fans because they hate it. But on the other hand, networks are always wanting to get new viewers in. And the only way you can get new viewers in is to make it entertaining as well as, uh, so instead of all being a whole bunch of experts, it's got to be entertaining. Yeah. I mean, that's what TV is. It's, it's entertainment. Even the sports is entertaining. The news has got to be entertaining now. So um, I think we always covered it pretty well and, and tried to make it, you know, for the, for the non-NASCAR fans, obviously because CBS are trying to sweep in millions of people who've never have no idea what NASCAR is. Mm. So you, you try and explain it without being too basic and, and upsetting the people that do learn what it is. Right. Yeah, that's and I, think I, I always think I did a pretty good job of that. I did too. I, I, that's a tough line to walk, and I think we, yeah, it we, is. we do it today. Where There was a particular moment in the race yesterday where uh, Kevin Harvick was out there on the racetrack, and he was racing, and he turned his alternator off. And he did that to gain a couple miles per hour uh, <laughs> out of the motor. Uh, or a couple horsepower out of the engine and his crew chief was telling him hey watch your volts if you're going to run that alternator switch off make sure you keep an eye on your volts and during the during the uh commercial break we're talking about this and we were making the decision whether to share it with the audience because you don't want to you got to walk that line between trying to not get you don't want to go in the weeds with the technical stuff, but there is that hardcore fan that would love to know, know about that, that information, sure. right? And so it's I think it's even in the broadcast today we sort of talk about, man, what what what's where are we? Are we are we entertaining right now? Or are we how inside yeah know, in, insider in, do you want to go? How insider, yeah, yeah. That was actually the phrase that Marty Snyder used in the conversation we were having. He's like, This is insider baseball, but inside baseball. Well, I well, think that's a good idea. I mean I <clears throat> I I didn't know you could switch. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. As you say, it saved a couple of horsepower. Right. Uh, but obviously, you got to might make sure you don't run out of Absolutely. juice. If your philosophy is don't no, talk down to the fans, what is your philosophy about other racers that you're actually broadcasting? Because we have a real funny clip of you um, uh, basically just calling it as it is, but you basically um, call the, the guy a dork, right? Uh, you, call, you call the driver who crashed. Matthew, do you have that? Oh, Adam Carroll, that's just such a boneheaded move, you dork. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I love that. Do you know how much we love that? That is that is great broadcasting right there. Did you ever worry about what the other no, drivers think? No, I never did. Uh, I never worried about what they thought um, because whoever that who was it? I couldn't see the clip. Adam Carroll, that's just such a boneheaded move, you dork. <laughs> Well, there you go. It was a boneheaded move. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he goes, I, I stand behind what yeah, I said. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, and, of course, that's what attracted a lot of viewers to my style of broadcasting was exactly that. And um, yeah. 
I, I never got any complaints from any other driver, and I never got any complaints from management. And and they, I, I don't remember them ever saying to me, by the way, you better be a bit careful because so-and-so got hold of us and said that he didn't appreciate what you said about him. Yeah. I never heard that. Good. Really? No? I, I struggle with that as, uh, as all the drivers. Uh, you know, well, it's a bit difficult for you because you're right in the paddock with them. I know. They'll give you a They'll give you a door. They'll give you a flat nose. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I, they, they know where I'm at. They got my number. And you want to – but the fan knows what happened. The fan's watching it. They uh, know They know it, what a door you – know, well, they like it they too. Know, they know a dork when they see one. <laughs> but, I, but the thing – of course, the funny thing about driving, I, I just still find it absolutely fascinating how people have – how drivers have such adoring fans. And, I mean, they get so incredibly kind of passionate, uh, passionate about it. Uh, and like you know, like an Alonso fan in Formula One. I mean, people just absolutely rave about him being the best ever driver, and, and he was an incredibly good driver. Um, but I'm just wondering where this passion comes from. Um, what makes suddenly somebody decide that this is this man is sort of kind of next to God, uh, yeah. and it, and it's just something to be revered. I I never felt that way. I mean. You ask me why I got in broadcasting. Everybody thinks everybody thinks I'm a car man because I race cars, but I'm not really. I'm not really into cars. I mean, when I was a kid, I liked to race, you know, running races, and I liked to play competitive sports. And then I got over it. it it's motorbikes, and then it was cars. And I really wanted to win, and I really wanted to. I I really just loved going fast and that being right on the edge, which of course on the highway. Back in my my youth was relatively easy to do in in the in the UK because the roads are pretty narrow, twisty. So it was good fun to drive on the roads. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, well, if I'm going to drive like a lunatic on the roads, I might as well drive like a lunatic on the track. So that's what I I mean. I really just always enjoyed the racing, but I never particularly enjoyed watching it. Quite yeah. honestly, I really? really no, it wasn't. No, you know, I wouldn't really go miles and miles and miles because, you know. Dale Earnhardt, or Dale Earnhardt or Fernando Alonso might be in the race. Right. It would never occur to me to do that. Yeah. But to go there to race, that'd be different. Right. Yeah. Speaking of that, let's go ahead. Uh, you know, dive into your career as a driver. Oh, um, yeah. Well, not not much to see there. Well, <laughs> your first race car was the was it? What was your first race car? My first car was my mum's Morris Oxford, which is a 1952 little sedan. You uh, took your mom's car and raced yeah, it. Yeah. How did your mom feel about that? Uh, well, she didn't really think much about it. <laughs> but I had modified it, so I modified the exhaust system. So it was very, very loud and noisy, which to me, <laughs> to me as a 19-year-old was very important. It had to make lots of noise <laughs> in a race car. But to be uh, clear, most moms do care about that yeah, if you've done well, that to their car. <laughs> so what she thought when she'd go to the hairdressers, drive down the main street and this thing making all this noise. But she never <laughs> complained about it. Yeah. Uh, what did you do? It. Take it and put a... F- Put a number on it and no, go down to yeah, the exactly. club meeting. Yeah, run, run. <laughs> in those days, exactly what you did. You drove. My first race was about 120 miles from the house at a place called Snetterton, which is a I know yeah, an, an old converted air World War Two airbase. Yeah. Wow! Uh, and you raced around the perimeter, and that's how most race tracks in England were. You raced around the perimeters of old airfields, which is what, exactly what Silverstone is. Yeah, Silverstone was like that. Snetterton was like that. Alton Park was it was in the park. Brands Hatch was a, was built. Oh, uh, Goodwood was a big racetrack in those days. That goes around where well, you've been to Goodwood. Uh, I haven't. You haven't? No, I've never been to Europe. I've never, well, 
Never been over. I can't imagine. I can't believe you haven't been invited to. I got to go to Goodwood. Well, more than likely, probably has. Have I just? I'm I'm dying to go. Like I want to go to Le Mans. I want to go to Brands Hatch. Um, I've I've drove on all these tracks yeah. on video games. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Bathurst. I got to go to Bathurst. Oh, yeah. In my mind, Bathurst is one of the most dangerous tracks in the world. Oh and my I mean, god! I mean that in a complimentary way. Yeah. Like a brave. It 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 takes real. Real guts going yeah. over that mountain is it's insane. It's very but that's just Australians in general. That's that's how that's how who uh, they are as people. They're yeah, gutsy, ballsy, <laughs> yeah. not afraid to do anything. No, they're not. Yeah. Is it but, the most dangerous? I mean, if you've been on all of them, right? I mean, like, what, yeah. what is the most dangerous? Well, of course, the most dangerous of all used to be the old spa, the first spa, right? Um, which is the same as the current spa, but a lot with a with another five miles added on. Yeah. Oh. And of course, when I first went there, I mean, there was nothing. The road was just a narrow country Belgium highway, yeah. uh, and it ended in the grass verge. And then there would be fences to keep the cows and the sheep in, and there was usually barbed wire. And then you'd go through a couple of villages, and you'd go past people's houses, um, just right at the edge of the road with their garden wall. Dog would come out from time to time and run across the road, stuff like that. Crazy. <laughs> they, they were really, and of course, even then, you know, with the, with the four GT40s, you're averaging nearly 150 around this racetrack with a couple of hairpins. Yeah. So, and it was all wide open. And the Formula One driver by the name of Chris Bristow had his head cut off when he went off the road in the Formula One race. And of course, he went through a barbed wire fence. Um, that was a bad day, that, because Sterling Moss broke both his legs in practice. Mm. Chris Bristow lost his head when he went through the barbed wire. And a chap called Alan Stacey was killed when a bird hit his head. Um, wow. All on the same weekend, and it used to be like that. Um, how was, did you, as a driver, compartmentalize that? Well, I don't know how. When I talk to my wife now, she was the one who really had to compartmentalize it, and how she did it, I don't honestly know. Because um, uh, we've been married now for getting on for sixty years, and she was there right when I, when I started. She was my girlfriend, and I hadn't even started racing. I was just fooling. We were just going fast on my motorbike around the countryside. And she was on the back. And um, so she'd always used to the speed. And then when I started a race, we, she liked that. She, you know, she found it good good social fun. We used to take our friends and go with friends and race. Um, and it wasn't very serious. And then when it started to get serious, she accepted it all very well. And how we all accepted all that death, uh, I wouldn't do it now. Yeah, I, would, I absolutely would not. But when you're 19, 20, 21, because in 1968, I went to Jimmy Clark's funeral, and that really did make me think, ooh, if it can happen to Jimmy, I guess it could happen to all of us because he, to me, was a hero and just absolutely was the best uh, and still is one of the best ever uh, and quite amazing. And I was at the funeral with Mike Spence, uh, and we were both pretty teary-eyed at the end of the, the, the I mean, the church. Obviously, I can imagine it was packed. And we're pretty teary-eyed, and Mike Spence was picked up by Colin Chapman, who was uh, Jimmy Clark's owner and owned Lotus. And he sent Mike Spence to fill in for Jimmy Clark to Indianapolis. And within a few hours of getting there, Mike Spence was killed. So I went to Jimmy Clark's funeral with Mike Spence one week, and two weeks later, I went to Mike Spence's funeral. Oh. Two weeks after that, Lou... Ludovico Scarfiotti, who was a top, top Italian driver, was killed in a hill climb in a Ferrari. 
And a month after that, Joe Slesser was killed in a Honda Formula One car at Rouen, going down the hill uh, towards the hairpin. Uh, so 1968 was a pretty bad year. Yeah. Um, and yet, I don't know why we all accept it, because you, you, today it just would be absolutely, totally unacceptable. Yeah. You know? I wonder if people are born with that. I wonder, I've always wondered that, because even people have asked you about compartmentalizing the dangers of racing, and I always just wonder, there's some people that are born with it, I don't know that you develop that after a while. I think it's something that you just ingrained. I think, I think it, it must be because we, I know we knew it was there and yet we still race. Why? I'm not quite sure. Yeah. But we did. I and I, but I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't do it now. Yeah. Crikey, I wouldn't, drive, I wouldn't drive down the road now at, at any sort of speed without a crash hat and, you know, seat full harness, all that sort of stuff. Because when I started, I mean, I raced at nylon shirt and jeans right. with an open face cork helmet yeah but as much use as putting a sticking plaster on your face you know I, mean? <laughs> uh, I mean it was uh yeah and uh fire was a bit of thing that we all dreaded most oh, of all of, yeah yeah because there were no no bl bladders or anything like that everything was in an aluminum tank you know just a yeah. regular gas tank Pop a hole in that easy yeah and the pipe to the engine would be just held on by you know jubilee clips what we call jubilee clips you call them those screw clips you know i mean that's all it was when I drive Formula Junior, they were pretty sh short races, um, you know, like 50 miles. And if we ever did like a 60 or 70 mile race, we'd put an extra gallon of gas because it was a tube frame, spindly little tube. I mean, not as big as this tube holding this mic up. Right. Um, mm. Very, very spindly stuff. I sat in the gas tank because being a bit tall, uh, the cars were made for shorter guys. So I had to take a seat out and I sat straight in the tank. Um, and then we put another gallon, gallon and a half, on top of the frame behind the dashboard, um, held on by a bungee cord <coughs> with a plastic pipe that went from it down into the main tank right by my right knee. Uh, <coughs> if it had any sort of a crash, oh. your knee would have just ripped this pipe right off, and I mean, there's just gas everywhere. Yeah, uh, that's nuts. Nowadays, the gas... <laughs> on all forms of racing is really well hidden in the Formula One cars. It's right in the middle of the car. It's all dry brakes. So if everything falls apart, the fuel won't come out. Um, and of course, fire got a lot of people in those days. Yeah. yeah. Always frightened the hell out of me, that did. Yeah. Fire is, you know, fire is, I always say this, and it sounds stupid to say it, but um, I'd never been in a fire before until I was in that Corvette fire. Two thousand four. It, it is hot, and I know that's. I don't even know how to make this understandable. But fire, like when you stand around a campfire, you get an idea of what of how hot fire is or could be, and maybe you've you've got burned by a stove or hot, touching a hot surface. But that is not even in the freaking ballpark. No fire, like the heat that created by a fire in a car is hotter it's hot as the sun man i yeah. mean it is like a it's like a million bees it's so hot yeah um, uh, and it is a and it is nothing to be it, playing it, with it used to frighten me um we raced with a guy called peter proctor who's a lovely guy he was very successful he did a bit of formula he did a bit of single seater stuff and he drove a ford anglia well if you've ever seen a ford anglia i mean it's a little tiny car um Anyway, he was racing out of Goodwood because the British saloon car racing was very popular. Yeah. Just like NASCAR is here. Uh, and it was all Jags and Austins and Morrises and Fords and all racing there together. 
Uh, and he had a big crash at Goodwood. In, it'd be 1962, uh, uh, I think. Uh, and it caught fire. And poor old Peter has been terribly disfigured ever since. And he is just so normal about it. Uh, you know, his face is all burnt, his lips are burnt, his eyelids, everything's burnt. Uh, and he's very disfigured. And he and his wife have also been married for nearly 60 years now. They they bicycle around France and they do all sorts of really good things together. And he goes everywhere. And, you know, you look at him and you talk to him and you never, ever, ever give it a thought. But he's been like that now for 50 odd years. Yeah. And because um, we had those little cotton uh, ride driver's suit. suits, those yeah. Dunlop driver's suits. You used to soak them in boracic acid, a boracic powder or something, which is supposed to make it fire resistant. Well, of course, it didn't. Didn't. Not really. Good Lord. No. Nowadays, you know, the suits are fantastic. But it, it seems so. I mean, but as, even yeah. then, as you said, the well, thing, even the thing about fire is uh, that people, I think a lot of people sometimes wouldn't be aware of is that not only, I mean, obviously the fire itself is dangerous, but the heat from the fire. So in the Corvette crash, interior of the car was got peaked at 750 degrees yeah. and like, wow yeah i mean if even though you may not be near flame that that intense heat you can only handle for seconds just seconds may at the most yeah and apart from the else it sucks all the oxygen down the atmosphere anyway yeah absolutely uh, quickly and, yeah um like that fire with nicky lauder who just died a few weeks back with a lung uh they gave him a lung transplant and of course if you ever watched the film rush yes i've seen it Great uh, movie. i had I thought it was fantastic. As a, as a, the racing scenes weren't great, but the, the story about these two guys doing going for the same championship in completely diametrically opposite ways, the way they both approached life was so different, so wonderful, uh, a great story. But when you, those scenes when they're vacuuming out his lungs, you know, because right. all the debris in there and the burnt flesh, it's a miracle he lasted as long as he did. Yeah. Uh, th- th- I mean, obviously his lungs must have recovered mostly because every time I met him, he seemed to be fine. Obviously yeah. a bit burnt, but fine. <laughs> um, but obviously it got him in the end. Um, but I mean, he la- he was into his 70s. So, sure. But all, I mean, we all, to, we all hope to have that full of a life. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You, yeah. You've been in a bunch of crashes yourself. I mean, what, and, and if I know the story right, you correct me where I'm wrong. One of them, you were about to actually make your f1 debut right and this was a, well, <laughs> this wasn't in a race this was in a is that not right that's exactly right the only times i've ever been i never got i i mean i don't know whether i'm proud to say this or whether i should keep it quiet but <laughs> i raced for 30 years in one of the most dangerous periods from 1959 to 1980 when cars the speeds went up absolutely at a massive rate mainly because obviously a lot of it was engine development but a lot of it was Aero, but most of it was tyres. I mean, when I started racing, tyres were that wide, always had tread. Uh, then suddenly Firestone and Goodyear got into European racing, into Formula One and into sports car racing. And tyre sizes went from like that to like a foot, you know, like the 22 inches across yeah. the tread, you know. And of course, they went to slicks. So the grip just changed unbelievably. So speeds rocketed up. And the safety of the cars the integrity of the cars didn't change much for a long time, and nor did the circuits. And in all that time, I never even broke a fingernail uh, in a race car. Meanwhile, I had two road crashes. Um, one, I fractured my skull, um, 
and was in hospital for a week. Then the other one, I was on the way to my first Formula One race, but part of the deal was I had to go to Tim Parnell's race shop in Slough, just outside London, right by London Airport, and pick up the car on a trailer. So I had a tow bar pull on my Ford Cortina uh, and was driving down to Slough to pick the car up. And the laundry van coming the other way, and I was doing about 80, 85, and the laundry van coming the other way, suddenly did a right-hand turn into a into a uh, industrial complex. And, I mean, we just slid into this truck, turned this big 10-ton um, laundry van over uh, and flattened the car. And I had my seatbelt on, but my head hit the steering wheel and I broke my nose and my cheeks and my jaw and my right arm because I don't think I thought to let go of the wheel. Um, so that... Obviously, I didn't do my first Formula One race. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, um, and I was in hospital for quite a long time with that. The worst part about that was my nose had got broken. And every morning, a nurse would come along with a glass, a glass tube and stick it up my nose so that it didn't heal together inside here. Wow. <laughs> and it used to hurt like hell. I imagine. <laughs> of course, I would yelp. And she said, I thought you were supposed to be a tough racing driver. And I said, yeah, well. yeah, but you're sticking glass <laughs> yeah, up my nose. nose. I think there's something. Anyway. But she just left it but up I there mean, once you so got it in there. <laughs> I just said, leave it in there. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to shove it in there tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought of that <laughs> at the time. And my wife, of course, was on, we were on vacation. I'd gone, we were on vacation at the seaside in, in East Anglia, and um, I had gone back in the car to get my racing gear. Um, of course, in those days, you were sort of always ready to go. You know, you took your every time you went to a race, but you took your helmet and your overalls because you never know looking for a drive. Not like today, you know, you know, you were always looking for a drive. And a friend of mine called Jack Brown came with me and I put a seatbelt on, which was a, a just a diagonal and a lap strap, but not, a, not on an inertia reel. I mean, it was a fix you were in. And he said, oh, well, if you're going to put your seatbelt on, I better put mine on then. Because in those days, seat people just didn't put seatbelts. They had this irrational fear they were going to get trapped in the car and it would be worse than getting thrown out wow. somehow. And I got all this banged up and old Jack Brown was sitting next to me. And when I looked at the wreckage a couple of weeks after I got out of hospital, you know, a couple of weeks later when I got out of hospital, I mean, his seat and the dashboard just all looked like one. Where his legs went, I've no idea. And somehow... He didn't get hurt because he had the belt on. If he hadn't had the belt, if, he, wow. if we hadn't had our belts on, we'd probably both be dead. Wow, so dead as mutton as they say. You have uh, so you've been you you got a, an amazing uh, history in Formula One and and racing overseas in twenty four hours and all kinds of different things. And you know you know pretty much every type of motorsport or have have witnessed it or broadcasted it or raced in it. What's the preconceived notions of stock cars over in Europe. What do people, what if people, I guess, Formula One fans, even drivers, what's their opinion of stock cars and NASCAR? Well, I think, I think people appreciate it's difficult, isn't it? And, you know, so a lot of the NASCAR stuff is live yeah. on, on various cables oh, yeah. right. in, in England. Do you think uh, it's, it's probably changed tons over the decades as far as the respect level for both sides, right? I'm sure. It, yeah, it has. Now, because I live here, so I really don't know what what they're thinking over there. Because I'm here more than right. up there now. Uh, now I'm an American citizen, and we lived here. And we've lived here for a long time now. Uh, but it's like everything. You know, the world is swamped with sport. 
Bernie Ecclestone could never understand how it would be possible that Formula One wouldn't take off in America and become the number one sport, uh, one of the number one sports here, like it is in a lot of in the rest of the world. Right. And we always say to Bernie, they got four major, major leagues. Obviously, the eight hundred pound grillers, the NFL. Then I said they got they got baseball, they got hockey, and they got basketball. All of which are huge, huge national sports and take up a tremendous amount of time. If you think that some one of those networks like ABC, NBC, or CBS is going to preempt like an NBA game or an NFL game to put on a Formula One race, I said it isn't going to happen. You're not going to be able to sign a, a five-year contract where you know they got all these races and they're going to preempt these. It's just, it ain't going to happen. Um, still, don't quite get it. And, of course, in England and in Europe, there's a tremendous amount of single-seater racing. And, obviously, there's the World Touring Car Challenge, which is in yes. Europe, which is all the European cars. Mm -hmm. And in England, you've got the BTCC, which is the British Touring Car My Challenge. My very favourite racing. Is, which is absolutely incredible yeah. racing. It's like stock car racing yeah. in my mind it's in exactly Europe. It's exactly like stock yeah. car racing, but it's on all on road courses. Yep. And uh, it, so for them, there's so much stuff to watch, just like there is here. There's so much stuff to watch, but obviously, you know, NASCAR has risen to the top to be the number one, uh, you know, motorsport. IndyCar, you know, helpful by help by NBC, I think a lot yeah, is making a huge comeback, and the and the uh, IndyCar racing the last four or five years has been tremendously close. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the qualifying times, the races, you know, like nine, what three years ago when I was last doing it, nine yeah. different winners in in all in what sixteen races. So, you know, you can't do much better than that. Uh, and Formula One is steadily making inroads. Um, but over here, and of course, you know, you saw yesterday at the, uh, at the US Grand Prix, I mean, they had a huge crowd. Yeah. And they had a very big crowd on Saturday for qualifying. Weather was perfect. <laughs> a bit cool for some reason. Yeah. Very right. cool. But uh, so, you know, NASCAR in Europe, well, obviously they, there's a lot of people who will love watching it. Uh, because what it, it's very it's such close racing, a lot of lead passes, a lot of lead changes, all that sort of thing, which Americans love. Uh, the Europeans aren't quite so fixated on that, but um, but there's so much for them to watch. But it, it's still it's still in there. Yes, yeah, it's, it's in there. Uh, a bit like Formula One is in here, but um, there's all sorts of other things to watch here, and there's all sorts of other things to watch over there. Yeah, you said you don't like to love to watch racing much, but what are some of the some of your favorite? types of racing to watch these days well i mean obviously i watch a bit of nascar well, i watch a bit of everything you know I, obviously i'm still interested in the formula one so i yeah. watch that as much as i can i like to watch le mans but i mean i used to love doing le mans i mean i did it 20 times and it was one of my favorite races to drive in uh it's not my favorite race to watch especially on tv because and it's cause one of the things that makes it difficult for just a, a non-real keen spectator to watch yeah is once they start getting all jumbled up uh, you know, after about the first half an hour, when yeah. the leaders have started to lap people, and then and nobody, and of course you've got so many classes now: GT, GTD, and you got the the Pro Am and this and that. You've got so many classes in there, and you've got a whole bunch of 911s running around, mm -hmm. all looking exactly the same. Yeah, uh, and they're actually running like three or four different classes. Right. Yeah, plus right. yeah. the prototypes are so much quicker than anything else uh, that it's hard for a non, a real sure. non-fan to, to comprehend. But if you go to the yeah. 24 hour, I mean, there's, you know, three or 400,000 people there. Of course, yeah. eight miles 
long, right. yeah. spread around. I've always wanted to go to Le Mans. That would you be- should go. It's a, it's a great event. It's it's like a it's like a must must attend. Like you must go to the Daytona Five Hundred. You must go to the Indy Five Hundred. You want to go to Le Mans. You got to go to Le Mans. You got to go to the if you can. You got to go to the Super Bowl. There are just some yeah. things. That, What's the go-to F1 race? The go-to F1, well. Or, or, or location. It's got to be Monaco, I right? Think, well, it is, but it's because it's the worst race to watch because there's least overtaking and viewing is terrible there. You know, I mean, it's, because it's also confined. Obviously, it's helped enormously now by the big screens. Because yeah. so, right. they flash by it. I mean, it's, you can't see them for far. I mean, somewhere like Silverson, you can... If you're a spectator there, you can see the cars for quite a long way as they disappear in the distance. Yeah. Um, but all road courses, unlike you know, that's the thing. That's the other thing about ovals. If you're sitting in the grandstand at Daytona, you can see the whole thing. Yeah. Right? You can see the whole thing's right there. Plus, you've got a giant screen as well. Um, and you go to somewhere like Road America, which is four miles around. You're down at Turn Five. You see them coming down the straight. See them out breaking each other, going up the road to Turn Six. That's all you see. Um, unless you sit on the hill, you can see a couple of corners. But if you've got a big screen there, it makes all the difference. Yeah. Whereas the big ovals, you can see the whole thing, which hey, makes a big difference. Dale, have you been to an F1 race? I haven't. Well, I don't. I would love to go to – I went to uh, – I love V8 supercars in Australia. Oh, yeah. I went to Phillip Island and got to watch that race. Oh, did you? Yep. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. We drove – we took a rental car and drove over to Bathurst and went around that racetrack yeah. in, a, in a minivan. And uh, we went to the little <laughs> tiny uh, Hall of Fame, or not a Hall of Fame, but the, uh, uh, I guess it's like a museum, and watched a video and went through the whole yeah. process. But uh, got to hang out with Paul Morris. and Oh, did you? Yeah. Went to his, I drove into Bathurst uh, in about 1980 uh, with Danny Holm. Really? Who was a New Zealander. Yeah. Same as Australian to you and me. Yeah. But uh, he's a New Zealander. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a world champion in 1967. And he and I drove a BMW in the Bathurst race. Um, it's a long time ago now. Yeah. And of course, poor Denny, in the end, when he died, uh, he died of a heart attack in the Bathurst 1000. As, yeah. you, as you come out of that dangerous bit you were talking about, going across the mountain. Yes. With the walls there. And, mm-hmm. oh, God, it, it's pretty scary. And then you come out, and there's a long downhill straight. Fast. Uh, which is fine, but there's all these houses on the left-hand side. Yeah. <laughs> With, the, with their garden, their front their front yard comes right down the even, track. Even today, during when it's not race season, it's a it's a public street. Yeah, sure. yeah. And Danny apparently he felt something coming. I just pulled over and just died there, right in the car. Wow. So I mean, if you're a racing driver, that's the way to go. I suppose the most dangerous race in the world to me now is the Isle of Man TT motorbike races. Have you yeah. ever watched that on I've, video? I've seen some of that. Yeah. I mean, now that. Is stupid. It's <laughs> a <laughs> so, so thirty-seven mile lap on public roads, and they come down Bray Hill. They average a hundred and thirty miles an hour, and they go right through all these towns and streets. And England has these pillar boxes, like a mailbox, and they're cast iron, and they're right there, right on the curb. What the heck? And there's no barrier anywhere it's all curbs trees gardens people's yards come right and gate posts wall brick walls everywhere i mean the the thing talk about it's and they hurtle through there and they jump all these jumps and they come down on the rear wheel and oh my god you watch these guys and they they got video they got on youtube you got video going around on 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 these bikes and you just cannot get your breath yeah uh 
Mm. Now they go off at timed intervals, so they're not together much. Yeah, right. But Still. nevertheless, I mean, as a if you want something dangerous to do, go to the Isle of Man. Yeah. I'd like to go to Brands Hatch to watch the yeah. race on the Indy course, the small one. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, the original. Yeah. And then uh in a British Touring Car Championship race. I'd love to see that. I'd like to meet uh Jason Plato and Matt Neal, the oh, two yeah. guys I watched yeah. race for seems like really? forever. Yeah. Well, well on TV, you know, yeah. we get we yeah. get some of those races over here and I've I've watched them almost their whole careers yeah. because I don't know what what it is. That's a physical, you know, beating and banging style yeah, of yeah. racing. Yeah, very know, much. About the most physical style of racing that I can think of that I've witnessed from Europe. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's kind of the stuff I'm into. But Have you ever watched those truck races from Europe? Well, I mean, the big trucks. Oh, yeah. I could I've never, seen YouTube I could never quite understand why that hasn't taken off over here. We had our trucks. We, yeah. had, we had that. We had um, back in the, I think it was the late 70s and early 80s, they ran semis on, at, they had a semi series and they ran like four races a year. They ran Atlanta, Rockingham, and there's some video and so forth. And, and they had several, they had like, 25 entries i mean they'd get and they were basically uh, semi-modified yeah. you know trucks it still exists like uh just not not uh broadcast nationally but uh, uh that bandit series uh they come by here a bunch yeah. they're pretty big in the midwest and whatnot uh but that's semis nuts. yeah semis really? it's crazy they ra- raced up at hickory yeah, and they ran dover dover yep <laughs> i remember them running dover Jeez. just it billowing Diesel smoke. Diesel smoke. Just <laughs> and, uh, pouring I mean, out. And, uh, I, what gets me about those is they go places like Silverstone or Brands Hatch. I mean, I can't imagine what they do to the guardrail when they go yeah. sliding on the road. They must smash everything up completely. Yeah, right. I'm amazed that the tracks let them race there because the damage, potential damage must be just horrendous. Man. Thing weighing thousands of pounds plowing into your guardrail. I think how, that how it'd be cool to have a NASCAR cup race at Brands Hatch on the end oh, course. Oh, man. Indy yeah. courses are like a, the smaller. Of, it's, there's very yeah a lot of configuration, uh, but it's a real. It would. It's kind of a com, compact little course. Yeah, uh, I think it's too narrow for NASCAR. You think it's too narrow? It's probably yeah. getting on for it. Uh, but I mean, yeah. I mean, actually, NASCAR, NASCAR Silverstone. NASCAR Silverstone would be pretty good because really? it's pretty wide open. Yeah. I mean, the Formula One cars average 148 or 150 mile an hour around. Yeah. Silverson. There's no real tight turns. You, did you run at Monza with the big banking? Well, funny as you ask that, <laughs> I am the last person to win a race include on the banking. Really? Yeah. Paul Hawkins, well, the golf team in 1968 when I was driving for Ford GT40 Golf, wire, the John Wires cars, one of the races was the, was the Monza 1000Ks. And in those days, it incorporated the whole track. So the pit lane or the pit straight at Monza is incre- still is incredibly wide, and the, the pits were here then. So on the opening lap, you go down the pits. At the end of the pits was a chicane, and then you go around the banking, which was very rough, which is why they had the chicane. The banking was already it's, – it's concave. You know, it's like right. parabolic banking. So the higher you go, the faster you go. Uh, obviously, there's nothing to stop you going over the top either. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's no rail. Or and, it started, right? and it started and it started to scallop out between the ribs where the ribs held it all up. And then there was a, um, a chicane coming off it so that uh, you couldn't just go absolutely flat out. And then when you came off it through the chicane, you were now on the opposite side of the pit lane. So the pit road then was probably 80 yards wide. 
and then you'd go on the course they go on now, except there were no chicanes. That first chicane you go around there, that wasn't there. You just went straight through the Curva Grande um, and straight down to the Lesmos. Now there's a second chicane, and you went straight down to the Lesmos, through the two Lesmos, and then coming back, the left-hander, which is called, which is now the Ascari, Varianti uh, Ascari, has a bit of a chicane going into it. Uh, and there, there was none there. Yeah. So then you go around the Parabolica, now you're back on the pit lane, pit side, and into the chicane. So it was about a, it was about a seven mile lap, wow. six mile lap. And Paul Hawkins and I won that race. Uh, but they've never raced on it since, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. So, and he and I won the race, and um, I think that's the last race they ever held on it. Mm. I mean, it's still there. You, you, oh, the banking's still there. It's yeah. fascinating, yeah. It uh, is. Yeah, well, it's it, kind of a mid- creepy. <laughs> yeah, right? it is. Yeah, like the Titanic like. laying at the bottom of the ocean. It's kind you like. Because when they raced there, they had that uh, European uh, Anglo, the what the American challenge there, where the Indy cars raced the Formula One cars. A lot of the Formula One cars didn't show up because it it was too tough on their suspensions. Yeah. Uh, even the American cars were found it because the load was terrific, wow. and it, I think it was pretty bumpy even then. That was back in what fifty. Yeah. My curiosity, I guess, is that Europe built banked corners and and shaped in. I mean, it has it. it has an oval-esque sort of feel to it. I always felt like that, you know, NASCAR, NASCAR sort of, like the oval, where did the oval start, right? Was it in, you know, where did the oval start? Where did banking come I into play? I think the first oval was uh, Brooklands in England. Really? Down near, down right by uh, McLaren. Yeah. McLaren at Woking. Woking is just right was by. Was that a bank? And that was very bank. That, that was, again, it was right. parabolic. Uh, how, how big and, was and they raced there before. I'm not quite sure about uh, it probably uh, a couple of miles or yeah. a mile and a half okay. it looks like a big <coughs> test track yeah and they used to race there before the war and then when the war came I think uh, one of the aircraft manufacturers was building a factory there and they took up a lot of the space and right. obviously it's it's never been used since the war yeah I think it's still there there's right? a little tiny bit of it there like yeah. one turn yeah yeah. yeah. So, so that might have been the first banked track ever man so banked know. ovals almost originated and spun into i mean imagine if banked ovals were all you had in europe instead of road courses right <laughs> like what like yeah. over here there's road courses there's famed road courses but uh well bill i think bill twigged that the the big thing about a bank course was it had to be even banking not parabolic yeah because you, you know the speed at the top is so different to the speed at the bottom and the thing about having a straight bank at a 36 or 24 yeah. whatever the degree is you can race side by side, and that's what makes that's what gives NASCAR its big appeal. Yeah. Is you got three or four, four wide, the four wide. Yeah, <laughs> wide. How do you spell wide? Wide. W a a a r d. Wide. W a a a d. The four wide, and that that's what makes it so exciting. Because you can't do that on parabolic banking. Of course, you can't do that through any sort of a road course corner. Very rare. I mean. We saw Lando Morris. We saw a few people going around the outside of people yesterday in uh, it, the Coda track, but um, it's um, uh, that's what makes NASCAR what it is. Is yeah. that is that straight banking? You asked me about the racing. If you're going to go and see a Formula One race, and you said Monaco, obviously Monaco is the place to go. If you want to see Ferraris, Bentleys, Rolls Royces, uh, Lamborghinis, yeah, go to Monaco. You the more. Expensive cars per square foot in Monaco, right. anywhere else you could imagine. But probably one of the best races to go to is Spa. If you want to watch the racetrack, great track. It's four, 4.2 miles long. Yeah. Uh, 
And although it's a long way around, it's easy to get to across the infield. You can go to various corners walking around. That's, yeah. that's important. That's important. The only yeah. trouble with spa, you want to take your, your raincoat. Yeah. Um, and the other one, if you want to get the feeling of ambiance, what Formula One is that's to what you, I, that's what I want. It's go to Monza. Yeah. You know, if you, especially if you're a Ferrari fan, you know, because it's just big crowds and amazing uh, setting. The park, you know, they, they can't mess around the park too much because it's a, it's a historic kind of monument as well. Yeah. <laughs> so they always have trouble when they want to widen corners out or give a bit more runoff. They got to cut some trees down. Oh, there's a whole bunch of people go ballistic, but. <laughs> Uh, and it's right outside Milan, which is one of uh, Italy's biggest cities. And it's a fashion city. I mean, if you take your wife there. Oh, man, now like, we're talking. Now you're talking big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the thing. Like, take uh, your wallet, take your credit card. Amy's like, Amy's like, man, now that you're not driving all the time, I've really got a couple things on. I want to check off the list. I want to, you know, let's go to Europe. Yeah, that sounds See, awesome. I love Milan. I mean, Milan, like, the shops in Milan are just unbelievable. I'm, and it's right, it's you know, We're having twenty miles. Yeah, track. but when I say, "Yeah, I'd love to see Le Mans," it's like silence. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "Oh, I don't want to go to a race." I'm like, see, not, no, I'm like, if I'm going all the way over there, we got at least go to Le Mans. See, this is why we, <laughs> this is why we brought you here. How do we talk to our wives about going to races? And it makes sense. This is why he just you bring did. Bible. He said, this is well, it. Milan, man. Yeah, you've given it to us. You have to be like me. You have to talk to them about going somewhere. Then. When you're there, mm. you say, oh, by the way, <laughs> the Italian Grand Prix. Is just <laughs> <laughs> it happens to be that same weekend. This weekend. Yeah. Did, did I? I told you that. that didn't dress I? you bought <laughs> yesterday would be awesome. Awesome for the race. For the race, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, my, I mean, my wife, she, she hasn't been near a race for years. She yeah. said, she already is 30 years. Oh, I'm not going to do any more. So, uh, uh, which is quite reasonable. So, uh, oh, I, I think have it is. the same opinion. And as I say, I mean, Le Mans, for me now, is great for practice. You go watch the practice and that stuff. And Because the thing about Le Mans, it's like in that, it's in uh, that late week, uh, middle of June. And at that time of year in France, it's late. It light, late till like 11 o'clock. Gets light at 4 o'clock in the morning. Great long days, beautiful countryside around there. Lots of wine to drink. Yeah. Lots of wine. Um, and the <laughs> the one thing that I've heard pretty interesting is the celebration in the town throughout the week where they're tech, yeah. they tech the cars in town. And yeah. so there's a the tech weekend. It's the weekend before now. It used to be like on um, Monday and Tuesday. Now it's the weekend before. And that's pretty fun. And that's a lot of fun. It's right in the cathedral square. The cathedral itself is huge. And if, you know, if your wife likes cathedrals, she can have a look around sure. there. There's a lot of expensive shops in in uh, Le Mans these days as yeah. well. It's quite a big town, uh, quite a big city. Um, uh, but the, the and then they have on the, the, the like the Friday of the race week, of race weekend, they have the big parade through the town where all the drivers, well, she probably wouldn't want to watch that, but you know, they have thousands <laughs> of people come to that. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big deal. But, um, <laughs> but the race itself is, yeah, I mean, like I say, Unless you ride into it, it's, it's hard. To, once it starts, it's hard to keep up with. It. Yeah, absolutely. But to drive, it's a, you love the circuit. It's just fabulous. Um, and one of the best races I had um, would be about 1983 or 4. Um, I was driving John Fitzpatrick's Porsche 962. And we were doing about 200, I don't know, 238 down the straight, uh, which in those days was four miles long. Got two chicanes in it now. Um, which in normal life are traffic islands, big, big traffic islands. Uh, and it, it was about a four-mile-long straight. 
and then you go through the Mulsanne hairpin at the end of that, and then there's another long downhill run, and you get up to the same speed, about 238, and then there's a right-hand sweeper. It goes into what they call the Indianapolis turn, because it's about the only left-hand turn on the track. And then you come out of there, and you go through the Porsche curves and up, up to the pits. Um, but I had a fantastic race with um, Klaus Ludwig, who was also yes. driving 962, and we were drafting a lot and we and it was a beautiful after it was probably about seven o'clock the sun was lowish in the sky and it was a beautiful beautiful afternoon and um we just fooled around there because they only do about 45 minutes 50 minutes on a tank of gas you know and we had 40 minutes of absolute tremendous fun um well i was 45 at the time so it must have been 84 um about after i'd pulled in and we'd change drivers uh didn't change drivers every time swap fuel but I mean it was time for me to change and I got out and wandered around and Klaus Ludwig comes up to me and he says how old are you? And he was about Klaus at the time was about 25 and he comes up to me and he says how old are you Herr Hobbs? <laughs> and I said I'm 45 so you're too old to be driving like that <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun yeah. so. real briefly I just want to ask you my friend Eric oh. Morse yeah. asked me to ask you about why what you learned from wearing fancy underwear while racing in South Africa. <laughs> and I, 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 I was so intrigued no. by it that I had okay. to ask you. Well, back in the 60s, string underwear became the thing. Uh, you know, you wear string vests. Yeah. Uh, so macho and kind of area. I don't know. So I <laughs> had a pair of string underpants bought from Marks and Spencer's in England. And I did the uh, the Kyle Army Nine Hour in South Africa with Jackie X as my code. And Jackie X had broken his leg at the American Grand, U.S. Grand Prix at Watkins Glen some weeks before, so the, the the ankle was still a bit stiff and everything. So I did quite a bit of driving. Now the GT40, the filler cap was one of those great big historic, you know, great racy looking thing with a big lever and you. Flick it up, and of course we filled the car with cans. Then, like, like just like an NASCAR yeah. car. Anyway, I'm sitting in the car in the pit stop. The engine's off, but I'm sitting there in the pit stop, and a lot of fuel got spilt out of this filler cap. Well, the driver's seat's here, and the A pillar's here, and the filler cap's there, just outside the windshield. Well, it, it all went came through. Anyway, I I ended up sitting in a pool of gas. Oh. Now, today, because you'd go out and they'd dry it all out and they'd take it all out before they let, they'd, I fired the engine with all this fuel in there on the floor, on the floor and around my rear end in this seat. And so I go off and do my stint. Well, about, I mean, halfway, and the stint was about another hour, hour and a half or something. Well, my butt is absolutely stinging like hell, you know, with that fuel, just sitting in that fuel. And of course, it's soft skin, unlike your hands, where you put right. fuel on your hands or your arms, you can't even feel it. But round my rear end, I mean, it was sore as hell. Anyway, when I got out, I mean, I ripped my overalls off and my underwear, and I had, you could have played check, you could have played noughts and crosses on my backside for about a year. It burnt the shape, it burnt the, the outline of these string underpants into my <laughs> into my right cheek. I mean, it was really well and truly embedded it. And it lasted about a year, year and a half. Damn. So that's what you can tell Eric. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> I've never asked another man a question like that. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Well, man, oh, you're on Twitter too now. Yes. Yeah, so I was a bit you... disappointed when you went on to Twitter. I, after about four years of Twitter, I managed to get 42 or 43,000 yeah. followers. 
Do you enjoy it? And the day you went up, you got 400,000. I thought, oh, well, that puts, that puts things into perspective, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do. I, I just find it that people the, the, talk about fans. Yeah. I mean, people get absolutely crazed on there. Yeah. I mean, they get, they get hobbicidal. Um, <laughs> so I don't Twitter. I haven't got much to tweet about now. You know, I went and sat in the garden. <laughs> Big, okay. <laughs> Very interesting. I'm sure people want to know that. Uh, but uh, so. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy reading them, and of course, it's, it's a way to follow the races too now, and now. and follow what's going on in the world. But um, yeah, uh, I, I do. I don't do Facebook. I should do Facebook, but it's too nah. complicated. Nah, I think yeah, Twitter's I, good yeah, enough. Yeah, enough. It's good enough. Yeah. So well, you know, we got to ask him one more thing. Though. What's that? Well, he happens to be in our favorite movie. Oh, Stroker Ace. <laughs> I mean, we, we can't have somebody in on Stroke Race. Sure. And when not I was have telling people uh, that when I tweeted that you were coming on here, that was uh, hit, that was in the timeline a lot. He was also well, in Stroke Race. <laughs> well, yeah, movie started Stroke Race and Cars too. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> Stroke Race. I was in with Chris Economaki, who was Ken's forerunner. Ken, uh, Ken and uh, Chris yeah. were the two probably the doyens of auto racing broadcasting in America. Both were great, and I worked with both. Um, and anyway, Chris and I asked to go and do a bit on Stroke Race down at Charlotte. And so we flew down there. I, I'm really, I don't think we got much. I think we got a 1000 bucks. Anyway, they uh, said, come down to Charlotte. And uh, the director, of course, was uh, the stuntman. Uh, yeah, Hal Needham. Need need yeah. So we got down there. I'm thinking I'm going to see Donnie, uh, what's her name? Uh, Burt Reynolds' wife. Burt Reynolds. Oh, Lonnie. Lonnie. Lonnie Anderson. Lonnie. That's the only reason I'm doing this film is to see Lonnie. <laughs> there was nobody there. Um, so we are calling the end of that ridiculous race where he's upside down. <laughs> so, On, over the film? Yeah. Well, we don't see any film. We don't, oh. see, we don't see any. They take us up into the grandstand, oh. into a, or into the box, you know, so, and... So it's easy for us to make what we're looking at the cars go by. They had a couple of step ladders with a plank on it, and this guy walks across the plank, and we watch him walk across the plank. And that's that was the car. That was y'all's head motion for uh, talking. Yeah. yeah, that's how we watched the car. Oh my we, god! We watched this guy walk across the plank. Like that. <laughs> you uh, were hoping for Lonnie Anderson. You got a guy walking I, across. I was hoping Lonnie Anderson. Like, I got some guy in old scruffy jeans walking over a wooden plank. So. And we were only there. I mean, we were only there for. I mean, we did it a couple of times. They said, "Well, that was pretty useless. You two usually, obviously, never done any broadcasting before. So why don't you f off back to wherever you come <laughs> from?" So, um, and that was it. That's all. I. That's all. I think that's all we did, isn't it? Dang. And um, it's such an embarrassing film to watch. You. I love it. I was on. I was watching it on a plane once. And I put a hood over my head in case somebody sitting next to me recognized. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> but, oh man. I love it. I, think, I love everything about it. I think, <laughs> And then Cars 2 was the same. I went out there hoping I was going to see Michael Caine. Uh, I did see the Pixar Studios, which were pretty incredible. Very nice. Oh, I bet. And uh, that, that, was, that was quite – but, I mean, I still get royalty checks for that. I mean, for uh, Stroker like, Ace? Like, no, no for, uh, for Cars 2? Cars 2. I never, yeah. I, never, I never was in the union for uh, Stroker Ace. But for Cars 2, I got a check the other day for $97. Ninety-seven. That's pretty good. I mean, so I went out for a drink. Yeah, that was it. Gone. <laughs> Did you notice our Clyde oh, yeah. Torkel's chicken bucket sign back there? Chicken pit special. <laughs> yeah, I, I see it now. I'm telling you, we like we like our Stroker yeah, Race movie. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. See. Well, man, we're out of time. I uh, 
I just want to thank you for spending your morning with us and coming all this way. It was a real honor. Um, I, like I've told you, I mean, I, I mean everything I said about how I feel about the 1979 Daytona 500, and the reason why I feel that way about it is because of you and Ken Squire and how y'all brought the action. And when I decided to become a broadcaster, I hoped that I could do the same in the, in the job that y'all did as far as making it entertaining and enjoyable to listen to. You guys set the standard. Nobody did it better. Nobody will ever do it as good again. And well, I'm honored to have you here across the table from me to be able to tell you that. Thank well, that's very, very kind of you, Dale. And I, coming from you, I, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for asking me. Absolutely. I mean, no trouble at all. It was a great conversation, man. A lot of fun. Thank we you. We learned a good. lot. <laughs> thank you. Yes, sir. Invincible, invincible. Oh, For the last few weeks, we've been doing something really cool on the show, very special to me. Mountain Dew and I teamed up with Team Rubicon, and we are telling the story of this great effort. Last show, we spoke with a veteran volunteer, and this week I want to get Jake Wood back on the phone to go deeper into some of the stories. Team Rubicon. All right, let's get on the phone. I'm going to go ahead and give him a ring. Hello? Hey, Jake, it's Dale Jr. Hey, Dale, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for jumping back on the phone with us today. Uh, as you know, Mountain Dew is helping me do this series on Team Rubicon, and this is the final week. Last time we spoke, we talked a lot about Team Rubicon and some of the relief you guys are doing. I want to get a little more personal, I think, in this particular opportunity to talk to you, if that's all right. Before there was Jake Wood, the co-founder and CEO of Team Rubicon, there was Jake Wood, the college football player. How did you go from an offensive lineman for the University of Wisconsin to a sniper in the Marines and to a CEO of a humanitarian relief organization? Man, that's a that's quite a trip. Yeah, you know, it's actually really simple, really easy. It turns out that if you're a really bad college football player, <laughs> uh, you end up in the Marine Corps. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I say that only partly in jest. I, you know, I went to the University of Wisconsin hoping or expecting to have a great career and go to the NFL because that's what offensive linemen at Wisconsin do. But uh, it just didn't turn out that way for me. And in 2005, when I was graduating, I, you know, I looked, I, you couldn't turn on the TV and not see, uh, you know, young men and women, young, young Americans overseas on the ground fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so when I, when I graduated uh, shortly after I played my final game, um, you know, I just, I had this choice to make and I, I decided to enlist in the Marine Corps. And it was, you know, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Obviously it was probably the most consequential decision I ever made. I was in the infantry. I deployed to Iraq. I've deployed to Afghanistan as a sniper, um, you know, lost friends, saw really hard things to see and, and did really challenging missions. But, um, you know, I was proud to serve my country. I was proud to be a Marine and um, you know, and ultimately, uh, without any of that, I don't know that I ever would have started team. I know, I, I, I know I shouldn't even say, I guess I, I know I, we wouldn't have started team Rubicon. Well, through my experience with team Rubicon, obviously at first glance, uh, you naturally assume the purpose is to help people affected by these disasters, but I saw something additional and, um, how much of your core purpose is about the veterans themselves? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the, the mission of this organization is is to respond to disasters, is to help people who, uh, you know, have suffered the worst day of their lives. And what was interesting was as we started building this, we did start to sense this, uh, you know, we called it an unintended consequence. We, we had these military veterans who would speak to the, the positive impact it was having in their own lives. You know, they would often you know talk about these three things. Uh, they would talk about the sense of purpose it gave them. They would talk about the community that they gained uh, from from joining, and they talked about this this sense of identity that they got back. You know, they they when you when you wear the uniform in the US, United States of America and you, you serve overseas, you have this immense pride when you look in the mirror, and then you take that uniform off for the last time, and you know a lot of people just find it hard to look at the person staring back at them in the mirror and and be be really proud of who they are. Um, not everybody, but some. And so we started to see that, you know, I think the difference though, is that so many organizations, they see, they see veterans that they work with as kind of the object of their charity. Oh, we're here to help you. You poor, you poor thing, you poor veteran. And we take the opposite approach. We say, Hey, you know, you still have something to give. You are a better and stronger person because of your service, because of your experience overseas. And you are actually going to be the agent of our mission. You're going to be the catalyst for the change that we're going to see. And I think that approach is, is unique. And I think it's really healthy and helpful for the veterans who hear it. What makes the veterans uh, most compassionate when it comes to volunteering for disaster relief? I think the veterans that serve with us, they just have service in their DNA. Um, and I, I, and I think there are some underlying things as well. I think many of them, uh, they come back and they wish they, could have seen more impact from their service overseas. You know, progress was really hard to measure in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and particularly now when we see, you know, those countries just, you know, literally devolving, dis- disintegrating in front of us in the news. Um, I think people are looking for, you know, a way to just have impact that they can see, that they can feel, that they can measure, that they can be proud of, and that they don't have to worry about, you know, turning on the news a decade from now and and seeing it all, perhaps just go to waste. Uh, I think that's that's a powerful opportunity that they're looking for. Speaking of powerful, can you sh- share some powerful things that you've experienced or seen during uh, your your time with Team Rubicon? You know, I, I, I see, I've seen a hundred, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, without getting into specifics, I, I, I always kind of have people try to visualize this scene that I've seen play out a dozen times where you have a woman or, a, you know, a survivor standing in front of her home that she's been in for 50 years, you know, she's been widowed for a decade and all of her life, all of her memories, all of her possessions are, you know, underneath this pile of rubble that is now what used to be her home. And, and she's crying and she's scared and she doesn't know what's going to happen next. And you see this, this veteran walk up to her and, you know, he's got tattoos down to both of his wrists and a big bushy beard. And, you know, this grizzled combat vet who, you know, maybe did or saw, you know, horrible things overseas in his wars and, and, you know, doesn't think that anybody could ever understand the tragedies that he's experienced, but he walks up to her and for the first time in his life realizes that, you know, that human suffering is in some ways universal and and they, they embrace and they realize that, Hey, we're going to get through this together. And, you know, I'm here to help you and, and, uh, you know, everything's going to be okay. And, I tell you, if I've seen that once, I've seen it a dozen times play out in some fashion. Um, and it's it's just this powerful, refreshing, and inspiring moment. Yeah, when I was in Florida um, with you guys, 
being able to, we went to the this neighborhood and it was uh, just destruction everywhere. Um, and the, we were cleaning out this yard, this backyard of this elder, elderly lady's home. And to be able to uh, see the, I don't know, the relief and, and joy on her face that someone was there. Someone was there helping, and, and she, it was there was no way that she was going to be able to accomplish the things that needed to be accomplished. And in some, that was on a more smaller scale, I'm sure, of some of the things that you guys encounter. But, man, it was such a great feeling to just be a, to visually see that all coming yeah. together and that in, interaction between her and everyone that was there. Uh, what is the message that you'd like our listeners to come away with regarding team Rubicon? Wow. Uh, it's a, it's a big question. I, th- I think, you know, for all those listeners out there, I, I, I hope that they would, you know, be inspired to learn more. I think, I think, you know, there's so much division in this country today. It's often hard to find uh, ideas or themes that unify us and inspire us to remember, kind of, you know, or to, uh, to think about the America that, that we all want America to be. And, you know, listen, I'm biased, but you know, I think Team Rubicon represents the best of those American ideals. And, you know, all that division that we hear about, you know, on both sides of the aisle, it, you know, for us, it doesn't matter. We have, you know, our fellow human beings, both here in the U.S., our fellow citizens, but our global citizens around the world. And, and when they need help, we're there to provide it for them, regardless of who they are or where they come from. And, um, you know, do that in that spirit of, of selflessness that, um, you know, this country was born of. Uh, so I just encourage your listeners, uh, you know, to, to go online, to learn more, to, to read some of these inspiring stories, watch some of the inspiring videos, see the photos of, of Dale uh, out there hauling <laughs> away, you know, torn up trees off that woman's lot, which we have evidence of um, <laughs> and just being inspired. Yeah, I would encourage them as well. Um, it certainly impacted my life and my uh, my view of what's going on out there and the amazing things that Team Rubicon is doing. I am in your corner. Jake, thanks for uh, the conversations over the past weeks. I appreciate you uh, joining us again today, giving us your time. Uh, thanks to the 100,000-member volunteers of Team Rubicon, and uh, we will do everything we can to spread that word and that message, buddy, and I hope to see you soon. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Mountain Dew is championing the power of doing. In this day and age, there's a lot of talk, but it's the doing that leaves a mark. Mountain Dew knows that no matter who you are, one person or a group of people, you can make an impact through your actions. That is why Mountain Dew and I teamed up with Team Rubicon to champion selfless men and women who truly embody what it means to do the do. To learn more about Team Rubicon's work, go to teamrubiconusa.org. So, Leah. Hey. Yeah, we're going to pick on you for a minute. Great. I know you're always looking on social media and keeping a pulse on what our fans like and don't like. I've noticed some people like our ad reads. Oh, yeah. We uh, we put out on social media to have people tell us their favorite moments. And more often than not, we got some about ZipRecruiter or ZipRecruiter, ah. as Jill says. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> is it, what is it? Is it uh, like the way I say ZipRecruiter? Or is it that they like the story of everyone's favorite coffee industry CEO? Cafe Altura's 
Dylan Miskowitz. What if I ever meet that guy? <laughs> oh, Dylan was having trouble finding his new director of coffee. Finding qualified applicants is hard. All right, and Dylan was struggling. So then he used ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Yeah, you'd never find anybody to hire. You'd never find a good candidate. Why Why would you even go about it that way? You wouldn't. No. So ZipRecruiter finds them for you. That's right. All right. You ever want somebody to do something for you? All the time. ZipRecruiter's going to do something for you. This technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. This guy, Dylan, posted his job on ZipRecruiter. All right. That's why people love this ad. And he was, <laughs> dude, he was impressed at how quickly he had great candidates apply. He used ZipRecruiter's <laughs> candidate rating feature to filter its applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And folks, that is how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. You thought I was going to say weeks. Uh, no, I thought I, I, it was days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. You thought I was going to say weeks, didn't you? Again, you got me. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address. This is ours. <laughs> ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. That's ZipRecruiter.com, D-A-L-E-J-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. is the website. ZipRecruiter is also the smartest way to hire. Beautiful. Five stars. Amazing. <laughs> Isn't that great? We're doing some odd history, Mike. We're ready. The year is 1951. <laughs> Herb Thomas took the checker flag in the Southern 500 at Darlington Raceway, driving a 1951 Hudson Hornet. For Thomas, it was a good day. <laughs> he had the trophy and only had to tow back home across the state line to Olivia, North Carolina. What are you doing? The day and commute was a little different for George Seeger. <laughs> Seeger drove his Tony Sampo owned, you guessed it, 1951 Studebaker to a 20th place finish. After the race, the two had to drive home from South Carolina all the way to Whittier, California. That's a hike. <laughs> but it wasn't the 2,500 mile journey that would get the best of them. It was each other. Oh. <laughs> oh. Seeger and his car owner got into a major argument right around Phoenix. Oh, so close. They stopped for gas. While Seeger was using the bathroom, Sampo drove off. Yeah. He left his driver at the gas station in Phoenix. He had to find his own way home. California. Odd history. <laughs> what the hell just happened? You read odd history. Yeah. You read odd history. Is right. that what you wanted? It's, it's, I thought he said you wanted you to read odd history. Yeah. Yeah. Dill, yeah. Quit TV now. You're just gonna be like that guy that on a day 
<laughs> that well, listen. What what made me want to read it that way was because the first line is the year nineteen fifty. <laughs> I can't read that any other way. Try, Mike. All right, Mike. White flag. <laughs> <laughs> the year is two thousand nineteen. Keep coming, bud. White flag, bud. White flag, right there. White flag. All right, guys, we're going to do some white flag. I want to start white flag with something that David Hobbs asked us to promote. And uh, I'm reading Steve Matchett's, uh, Matchett's uh, tweet, A Night at the Races with Diffie, Hobbs, and Matchett. That's going to be on December 2nd. Come join the three of us on the evening of December 2nd in Charlotte, North Carolina. What, what is this, Matthew? Do you, can you tell? It's uh, at the Bloomingthal uh, Arts Center in Charlotte. And okay. if you know Matchett and Diffie and them, they're good storytellers when they're together. Great, so, great entertainment. Yes. That'd be awesome. Um, so I'm that, hot. I'm hot. Good. That's good. This mic's hot. <laughs> you dang straight, you're because hot. Because the hottest. Is, is that better? Check, 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 check. Yeah, there you go. There you go. We're All right. Uh, so, anyways, um, in social media, but, but listen, I'm going to tell everybody, if you're listening to this show, we appreciate it. But if you're not following us on social media, then you're still doing it wrong. So, follow us on social media. And that is at Dirty Mo Media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, especially on YouTube. We do some real good stuff on YouTube. Also, speaking of YouTube, the new Dale Jr. Spy Cam feature is on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube page. YouTube page. Oh, yeah. This week, go check out Dale Jr. and Steve LaTarte behind the scenes. Hey, they called the Texas uh, race uh, from uh, the booth. Uh, uh, uh. Um, watch it. What? I watched it. Then you I know what I'm talking it. about. Oh. I didn't watch it. Oh. Yeah. Seven times. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, That's the, what uh, you did on Spy Cams. You'll have to watch it to see. Well, I guess I will. All right. I mean, God, you got all kinds of characters you're pulling out today here at the end of the show. Um, all right. Is it, uh, I was doing the the count. Yeah, from uh, from Sesame, Sesame Street. Street. No, no, we got it. N- never, never. <laughs> You've done Durka, Durka, Durka before and that, so it's this year's complete. Durka, 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 Durka. The Dutch or what is he? Swedish. Swedish chef. That's my favorite character on Sesame Street. Hey, we should do. Uh, we, oh, he was a muppet. I've, oh, was he? Yeah. I've got a T-shirt with him on it, and he's, it says "Derfurk." <laughs> <laughs> my wife won't let me wear it. She was so mad. You need when to wear I, that the show. She was, she was so mad at me when I pulled it out of the package. <laughs> <laughs> Why won't she let you wear it? I don't get it. It's so stupid. Well, you've worn. Uh, I also the, bought a Fraggle Rock T-shirt. I used to watch Fraggle yeah, Rock. Yeah, I love uh, Fraggle yeah, Rock. It's part of the line. She's like, "Why are you? Why are you going to wear this?" Dozers. She's not impressed. Right. Well, <laughs> dude, you wore <laughs> for the documentary a, a T-shirt very, with a mustard and ketchup. Right. On. She I mean, bought. Yeah. She bought that for me. It's you. <laughs> I tell you what, the perk. <laughs> <laughs> Our TV show, The Dale Jr. Download, airs on NBC Sports Network at 5 p.m. this Tuesday. Check that out there. Driven to Give. I, listen, I want to take a moment and just say congratulations to you, Dale, and also the Dale Jr. Foundation. Raised $390,000 in one night. Um, we also enjoyed performances from kids of our part. I didn't say what it was, did I? Driven to Give. Did I say that? Yeah. $390,000 at the Driven to Give event. We enjoyed performances from kids of our partner charities. That's Nationwide Children's Hospital, AMI Kids, White Pines, Camp Luck, and Make-A-Wish. Uh, the money raised serves those charities as well as other uh, local and national charities as well. Uh, philanthropy, the philan- the philanthropy is not philan- over. Dale philan- Jr. will be heading to Ohio for a Nationwide Children's Hospital fundraiser. Uh, listen, if you want to be moved, go to nationwidechildrens.org uh, and check that out. They do awesome things. Uh, let me hit a few Apple ratings and reviews. S.H. A- S. Norris, I, 
I have thoroughly enjoyed the interviews with the greats like Harry Gant, Dale Jarrett, and the great personalities of that time, but the Richard Petty interview takes the top prize. The glimpse into his 70 years in the sport was phenomenal. Uh, Packers Fansky said the guests have been really terrific. You need Ricky Rudd on. Wait, update. You need Ricky Rudd back again. So there you go. Uh, thank you for correcting. Uh, AZ Dr. Awesome. AZ Dr. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> been listening for a long time but your ricky red podcast set a new bar for me Ooh. he was my boyhood hero i remember going to all our local tracks martinsville bristol north wilkesboro and richmond fairgrounds to cheer him on my wife made fun of me as i cried enjoying all those memories oh, az wow. what what was it az dr awesome is it seager is he still in arizona goodness gracious i don't know but i don't know this his wife makes fun of him when he cries when he cries i would too listen I mean, his wife makes fun of him when he cries. Your wife makes fun of you for Fraggle Rock uh, I would, shirts. What I can do? appreciate him having some emotions watching or listening to the podcast. Absolutely. But if, yeah, but I would certainly make fun of someone. <laughs> there you moment. go. Good show today. I Ooh. thought it was a great show, guys. Kick ass. Yeah. What? Nothing. You're in there whispering. I know, we hear you it. Can we heard you can share it. You can yeah. share it with the group. I didn't know if you were going to talk about the new thing on the table. It's Let's wait. Let's yeah, wait. we'll wait. Bow, 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 bow. Let's see if they can see. Can they spot the new thing on the table? There is something odd on this table <laughs> that you may notice. So it's going to be hard for like them the, to spot it when it's on the podcast. Well, it's not, being announced today. It's not like the others. Oh, is it being announced Well, today? you could cut Isn't this it? into a YouTube video. All right, let's do it. Fine, let's do it. Hey, Dale Jr., check <laughs> this out. Look at this. I was looking at this earlier. You were? Yeah. yeah Matthew, he, you won that bet. found it. <laughs> Look at that. The Dale Jr. download car. It's a called it's called a fantasy car. You know why? Because it's not really going to be raced, or yeah. is it? <laughs> Without a number. But there you go. The Dale Jr. fantasy car. It's going to be sold, uh, I mean, everywhere. They said they're putting it everywhere. Oh, Lionel is. Everywhere. And uh, I'm known like Walmart, Walmart, everything hey. else. Right. So, and to be sure, now, we all had a hand in how this thing looks. For better or worse, like it or not, everybody, everybody saw the emails and the pictures and everybody had a little opinion at least about what that car should look like so i think that adds a little credibility to it this isn't something oh, drummed up by our marketing licensing team good point this was all shared amongst ourselves and this is our baby well if anybody knows you you're not going to let cars go out uh, and be sold with your name you on it without have, your. You your... could have skipped me in the email chain and went on right to production. Uh, yeah, that doesn't end well. But for I people. got invited. <laughs> I got invited in. People have done that. Don't work here anymore. <laughs> I got invited in, and we all. Yeah, that's our little. That's yeah. our little piece of heaven right there, man. We're we're proud of it. Good stuff. I don't know what else to say about <laughs> it. <laughs> Close us out strong, Dale. Man, Mike, you said it. it's a great show. Hobbs is awesome. Great storyteller. Yeah, I hope I can learn something from this conversation. To, become a better broadcaster for sure but uh like everybody else that we have guest wise man it's awesome to be able to learn about them learn new things we think you know you never know everything about a person and uh he came in here with his ready to go yeah he was good. awesome it was good stuff plus i think the rest of the show was really good too guys yeah i liked our open i liked the way we ended hopefully everybody likes odd history that'll be a test <laughs> new poll That'll be yeah, throw that poll out there. Yeah. That'll be a test for our movie voice, our listeners, our characters. Do you enjoy odd history this week? <laughs> um, all right, thanks guys. Thanks for tuning in. We got a couple more shows, and we're going to wrap this season up. Not sure how I feel about that. See you next week. This bit of badassery was made by Dirty Mo Media. Dirty Mo.